Hey everybody, today Rado talks through episode 61 of the podcast and it is a very dramatic episode indeed. There will be tears, there will be fury, and you'll be with me and sometimes Jen every step of the way. I should warn you folks, I get a little bit ranty a few times in here. Please forgive me, I will eventually cool down and apologize to whoever I was talking to at the time and uh, Jen will have some especially moving words of wisdom at the very end, uh, at least I found. And before we get to all that, I've got one very exciting announcement, and that is the podcast itself has switched homes. I am no longer hosting Rotto Runs Through on blogger.net, propagated by FeedBurner, which is some ancient bit of Google tech that they stopped supporting years ago. I've now moved over to a proper uh, site. Oh, is it Anchor? .fm is now the home for Auto Runs Through. And that's good news, everyone, for one reason. All of the old episodes of Rotto Runs Through are now available. If you check out whatever podcast listening apparatus you use, you can see it goes all the way back to number one. Previous to this, I could only keep the previous year's worth of stuff available in the feed, but now it's all there and... Oh man, there's a lot of it. So if you're uh, if you're uh, new to the party, well, you can go and enjoy an endless, endless parade of blather from me and occasionally from Jen. Hers is a little bit more on topic, I think. But that's the exciting breakthrough. Hooray! And uh, now, if you hold on, we'll be right back in a second with some game-related questions and answers. Okie dokie, it is time to start with a question from Nicholas, who notices that I often mention my love of Shadowrun Crossfire. Nicholas is a huge fan of Dragonfire and has never played Crossfire. Is there enough of a difference between the two games that I feel they wa- that it warrants having both? Or is Dragonfire just a retheme of Crossfire? If there is a difference, what is the difference that makes me say Crossfire is a superior game? Well, Nicholas, actually, if you go and watch my final thoughts when I did a run-through for Dragonfire, I did actually contrast and compare and uh, explained at that point why, while Dragonfire is great and we really enjoyed it, we did think and do think and continue to think that uh, Shadowrun Crossfire is the better game. In a nutshell, what's interesting, as I understand it, the original development team on Shadowrun Crossfire was external from Catalyst Game Labs. It was a group of design or a design uh, company that, as a group, designed it. And when um, Dragonfire came along, Catalyst brought the design task in-house. And it was basically a different... I think there were some of the people that worked on Shadowrun, but not all of them, and it's a different design group. And as a result, the main thing is Dragonfire got easier uh, and simpler. And I, I, Jen and I found it is much more engaging the original system with uh, the extra elements that were jettisoned to make the game just a little bit more approachable. Now that said... I infinitely prefer the Dungeons and Dragons settings of Dragonfire. Now, you know, and quite frankly, Dragonfire is good enough. 
if you have Dragonfire and you love it, I don't think I could justify saying, oh, you got to have Crossfire as well. Um, because, you know, Dragonfire is 90% the same. And I wouldn't be surprised if you could apply... If you just got yourself hands-on the original Shadowrun Crossfire manual, which, of course, you can just download from BoardGameGeek, you could retroactively apply the elements. There are some changes. I mean, I don't really like the way two-player... I think two-player works much better in Crossfire than it does in Dragonfire. And certainly Dragonfire, with all its extra missions, I don't think does near as good a job of balancing player scaling as or Dragonfire doesn't do as well as Shadowrun Crossfire. But Dragonfire is still great. And Dragonfire has the advantage of having a whole bunch of expansion content you can get. Although, interestingly, while at first I really loved that, I ran into some problems there too. If you watch the run-through or the final thoughts I did for my most recent expansion for Dragonfire... Although, weird, they've kind of dried up now. I haven't quite finished the storyline. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. But I mentioned that, you know, the more stuff you layer into Dragonfire, it's almost getting a bit bloated uh, compared to the lean elegance of base Dragonfire, or even better, base Shadow and Crossfire. But again, if you have Dragonfire and you're loving it, you're good, baby. Maybe just at some point, download that Crossfire manual, and you can see the changes, you know, the way setup works at a lower player count and some other stuff, and maybe apply that stuff. Or just enjoy it for what it is, because it's still a great game. But anyway, that was that. Then we go on to Henrik, who, one, points out, the games that people refer to as escape room style games. Or no, oh no, I skipped a line there. Ah, I've got to read the whole thing. If I were to choose a category or summarized group title for the following types of games, what would they be? Okay, so he wants me to come up with, he wants me to categorize an entire, or come up with a name for an entire category of games. You're crazy, Henrik. Let's see. First of all, the escape room type games. Exits, unlocks, deckscapes. They're often referred to as escape room games, even though that's rarely the concept anymore. True. Um... They, you know, you're not in a single room that you have to get out of. You're in some kind of much more elaborate or exotic location. Sometimes it's an entire island or you know a space or who knows. But it's no longer just a single room. Um, only the first few games really cared about sticking to the one room. Henrik wishes more people would start calling them puzzle games instead, as that gives you a better explanation of what you get out of the game. Um, they are under this category on BGG. I don't, I don't agree, Henrik. If you say it's a puzzle game, everybody is immediately, everybody in the world is going to assume you're talking about jigsaw puzzles. And they're just going to say, why are you calling them puzzle games? Are you turning a jigsaw puzzle into a game? What does that mean? At the end of the day, there is nothing... If you ask me, what would I call them? I would call them escape room games. Because it's, it's, it is a universally understood phrase. Everybody understands what you mean when you say an escape room game. It doesn't matter that it doesn't take place only in a single room. Um, the origin of the title worked at a time, and it is now established. I would say the exact same thing is true for Eurogame. Gamers, gamer geeks, know what a Eurogame is. You know what I'm saying when I'm talking about Eurogames, or an Ameritrash game, if you are a hardcore board game geek. And even though the uh, geographic... Um, label has nothing to do with anything anymore, uh, the terms still stick because they work. And you'll find this happens in language all the time. There are all kinds of ancient words that if you actually tear them apart, they make no sense. And now it's only because they made sense at a brief moment of time, but then they 
um, transcended their original usage um, as escape room games has. And so I have no problem with that. The only function that language has to deliver on is, um, you know, uh, contextually, very important, contextually communicating uh, ideas and the context of gamers. I mean, it's, I, you know, I, honestly, I would even go beyond that. If if I were talking to a complete novice who knew nothing about board games, and they asked me, hey, what is this uh, exit thing? What is this like? I'd say, well, it's kind of like an escape room, except you get to do it in your home, sitting at a table. And they'd say, oh, so it's like an escape room game. And I would say, yes, that's a good name for a category. Let's stick with it. Let's see. Next category. People call them rolling rights or flipping rights. Oh, stop going to sleep, computer. I need to turn on caffeine. Caffeine is a great little plug-in um, that does not allow your Kickstarter to... Or your um, oh, what the heck? Ah! Ca- caffeine, where are you? What, what's going on here? Caffeine is missing. All right, sorry, folks. Uh, this is neither here nor there. Um, but my machine is going to keep on falling asleep. If I All right, well, I'll just keep my hand on the mouse. Sorry. Rolling rights, flipping rights. Most of them are pencil and paper and mechanism, but that doesn't explain the gameplay too well. I don't know what to call them myself, and it's annoying that there's no better term than X and right. Personally, I like Rand and right because Rand is an actual Rand is short for random, and it's a it's a computer programming term. You know, some kind of random input: dice, cards, draw bag, flicking. There's a, actually a, a flick and right coming up. It doesn't matter. the The randomized input then leads to players manipulating, using, consuming, whatever it is, that input, and writing down. So I like Rand and Write. I like the alliteration, but it will never work. And you know what? My answer is going to be the same as four. I don't care what the randomizer is. I'm happy calling all of them roll and writes, even if there are no rolls. Because the, the, the title roll and write is much more about the writing than the rolling. And, um, you know, because there are plenty of there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of board games where you're rolling dice. There's nothing special or unique about that. It's a very small subset of games where you are writing down the results of your actions. Uh, yeah, sure, it's been around a long time, Yahtzee and 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 all that, but still, it's the exception to the rule. So, if you're trying to come up with something that makes these labels stick and be useful, you really need to highlight what is unique and different. Rolling dice isn't unique and different. Writing down the results is. So, I don't care. It's anything in write is fine with me. And since roll and write is so ubiquitous now, I think what's going to happen is eventually we're going to get to the point where, uh, you know, right now we'll say, oh, it's a roll and write, but you use cards instead of dice. Or, oh, it's a roll and write, except. Sooner or later, we'll just stop saying accept, And we'll just accept the fact that roll, in this case, is a stand-in for a some kind of randomizer. I think that's the future, and I'm totally happy with that. Um, right, because really, it's all about the writing, not the rolling. Number three, game people call games X-builders, deck-builders, bag-builders. Uh, the category used to be pool building on Board Game Geek. It's now deck bag and pool building, which is a good term for it, I reckon. Uh, pool builder is fine. Man, that just... Ugh. I don't like it. It just... It's not evocative of anything. It's just a weird hodgepodge. I mean, there's no getting around it. Anybody who hears that for the first time thinks of a swimming pool. You just can't not do it. And what... 
I'm surprised nobody's actually made a pool builder yet. I guess that's a indicative of how that phrase has not caught on because people have made games called deck builder, but nobody's made a game called pool builder. Um, yeah, but pool builder is what it is. Deck bag and pool building—that's ridiculous. Um, I don't know what's a synonym for pool. Uh, reserve builder? I mean, you know, it's kind of the, in most games they call it, oh, there's a reserve of stuff and you get things out of the reserve. In this case, everybody has their own private reserve that they pull stuff out of, whether it's a deck or whatnot. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think deck builder and bag builder, those two are so well established now. We're just going to continue using both of those terms. And if ever there's a weird offshoot, uh, a crazy thing, We'll call that something different. Or we'll say it's a deck builder, but with something instead of a deck. And honestly, I think that's fine. It doesn't really bother me to, to say that Orleans is a bag builder. It was, when Orleans first came out, it was a real pain. Because it, everybody had to say, it's a bag builder. What's that? Well, it means it's like a deck builder, but you have a bag of chits instead of a deck of cards. Oh, so it's a bag builder. But Orleans did the work. That is an established phrase. And I should say... All of these are, with the caveat of, established for crazy hardcore board game geeks. Because if you're listening to this podcast, I got news for you. You may be a crazy hardcore board game geek. Because normal people don't listen to this. Normal people, none of these terms apply. And quite frankly, none of our terms. Even something as simple and innocuous as gateway. A gateway game is a meaningless term. Which is why Dice Tower refuses to call it in their awards the uh, gateway game. Even though that's what it is. They call it the family game. Because they hope that has more meaning for uh, casual muggles. But... All of these terms, all technical terms in any field, whether it's filmmaking or aeronautics or whatever, scuba diving, these are all full of technical terms that um, keep casual people at bay and they require mastery. I don't think it's a problem. It's, it's It's a feature. It's not a bug. It's just the way it is. And, um, you know, people come in and say, well, why do you keep calling it a Euro game? It's very easy to explain that. Instantly. And, um, you know, sooner or later, once everybody in the world, 50 years from now, plays board games, and everybody knows what Euro game means, you won't have to explain anymore. But I think that's the reality of where we are right now. Okay. I don't know if that was any help, Henrik, but those are my thoughts. Marty was uh, recently playing Australia by Martin Wallace. He thinks it's a blast. And was curious if it was on my radar at all, since it's not on my ranked list. Well, Marty... You didn't do a... Your Google foo is weak, my friend. Uh, If you do a Google for Rotto Australia, you'll see I did a run-through for that a billion years ago when it was on Kickstarter. So yeah, Jen and I, we played it not quite a billion years ago, but a long time ago. Alrighty, so um, I'm trying to remember it now. I mean, it was back when we were in Malta. Jeez, that was so long ago. We just played a couple times, I filmed it, and then I moved on. I remember thinking it was cool. But, um, geez, I don't remember if we... Put, I mean, because it, it was a prototype. And I think that I think he was working on co-op rules and they weren't available yet, so we were playing the competitive. And I probably, in my final thought, said, boy, I really look forward to seeing the cooperative mode of this because I like the setting and I like the mechanisms. I'm thinking. it's I, There's probably a thousand games I've played between now and then, so I don't remember exactly. But you can do a Google search for Rado Australia, and you'll find it on YouTube, and you'll hear whatever I thought a billion years ago. Marty then goes on, what are my general thoughts on Martin Wallace? I think Martin Wallace, I've met him a couple of times at conventions. Um, actually, most recently, 
It was the Board Game Geek Convention in Texas, and he said, I want you to come up here and spend an hour with me, and I'm going to show you all the games I'm working on. Like, okay. And so I did. And he tell, you know, he showed me Rocketman, which is, and then he showed me several others, which either haven't been announced or not much information, so I can't really talk about them. And I thought, I thought it was so interesting. Martin Wallace has certainly gone through an interesting evolution as a designer. You know, doing you know the the indie thing, having some early hits, obviously having all kinds of legal troubles along the way with his various publishing partners, and eventually giving up on you know being a self publisher, moving down under. I forget if he's in New Zealand or Australia. I think Australia. Maybe it was New Zealand. No, it was New Zealand. I don't remember now. Anyway, um, he told me the whole story, and it was like a very long and complex and elaborate uh, story that got him from uh, the rolling uh, fields of England down under. But um, but the other thing is, no longer an independent, you know, doing really kind of hardcore economic stuff, trying to make a living at this, you know, trying to be financially successful, uh, has led him to... Uh, you know, to doing more licensed products, to doing more mass market friendly products, um, you know, to kind of getting away from his roots. And, um, you know, he's very straightforward about it. He's like, this is something I have to do. I can't make a living off of, you know, um, Age of Steam style games uh, because the market is too limited. So, uh, but, I mean, what he hasn't done is he has not lost his passion and his enthusiasm for gaming. When I mean, you know, I, again, I cannot tell you most of the stuff he showed me, but when I sat down, he was so passionate and so excited, uh, whether it was still an original idea or whether it was a licensed tie-in. And uh, I, I think that's really cool. I mean, I would say he's kind of growing into an elder statesman for, um, you know, because he's been... One of the guys who's still doing it, who's been doing it for so long. And he's been doing it successfully as a career. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't too long ago that you could probably count on your ha- on both hands the number of full-time professional de- board game designers in the world. Because there just wasn't enough market. But and, and Martin was one of them. So, although he was one of them because he was a designer slash publisher. Now he's just a full-time designer uh, working as a uh, hired gun for anybody who has an idea and wants uh, wants somebody to put together a really solid game. Because if there's one thing, his designs have never gotten weak. They're always strong. They're always interesting. You know, there's sometimes some problems. You know, the Halifax Hammer and uh, Acres of Snow or whatever. But I, I think he's a great guy. The other thing is, it used to be, and I've used to complain about this a lot, that he seemed to have a total disdain for two-player gamers. I remember reading in an interview he said once about some game, you know what, uh, You know, they asked, is it going to support two players? And his response was, no, I haven't bothered with that. I figure the, the gamers will figure that out for me. Because, of course, they did that for Brass. Brass is now officially, with its super deluxe reprint, a two-player compliant game. But for the longest time, it was officially three. And in-game users did the work that Martin didn't do. Because I think Martin just didn't care. He wasn't interested in two-player gaming. I think... He has definitely matured on that issue, and he appreciates that it is an important segment of his potential audience. And if he wants to be successful, he can't ignore that anymore. Um, so it used to be a problem with automobiles and whatnot. Nowadays, it's not, and it's a. So I think that's great. So it's definitely seen interesting. I mean, he has certainly evolved. I think more than most designers, uh, you know, gone through different eras of his career. And I think that's awesome. I think that's a sign of the maturity of the industry as a whole, as referenced by the great Martin Wallace. Okay. Corey 
says it's his first time writing. He's enjoyed the podcast for a few months. Well, there's a whole lot more now for you, Corey. Oh, it's a deep, deep hole you're going to go into. Or maybe not. Uh, You've heard I prefer nations over through the ages. You concur. Corey concurs. Can I give a breakdown as to why I prefer nations? Thanks for the time. Um, let's see. There's a bunch of things. I think more than anything else... Okay, no. I mean, I was going to say one thing, but then immediately other things start... I mean, man, yeah, Nations is so, for my taste, superior to Through the Ages, it's not even funny. The most obvious one is the way it handles warfare. I think Nations is brilliant uh, because it doesn't shy away or it, it doesn't compartmentalize the idea of military being a major part of, you know, the growth and spread of civilizations. But it also doesn't fall prey to the, oh, hey, let's uh, create a system where players get to kick each other's sandcastles down or, um, you know, or, or whatever. I, it was interesting, through the ages basically said, yeah, military is a big part of this game, but if you want, you can ignore it. And when Jen and I played it, it felt wrong that we were ignoring it. It felt, I'm not saying it was, but it felt like the game balance was off. That we were able to pull things off and achieve things that we shouldn't be able to because we knew there was no threat of violence against our civilization. And I, that never stood well with me. Nations dives right into it, but in the process, I mean, of any civilization's game is going to have to abstract down the notion of what a civilization is. You know, because it's, we're just have some cards and some chits and a board and some dice, maybe. So you have to abstract it down. And the way they abstracted combat is so brilliant. Because it, it's, it's not at all. Because a civilization game should take an epic scope, an epic perspective, and any one war, of course, to the generation that lives through it and to the immediate successive generations is a big deal. But to do you and I feel the pain and suffering of the of the wars of the ancient Peloponnes? Uh, you know, the, 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 today, no, of course we don't. Uh, it's it's a notebook in history, and the and the warfare in nations kind of feels like that because it feels more like, oh, well, yes, there was this one particular nation that started a military campaign, and um, other nations, well, they suffered under it, or they rose to the occasion, or they were so strong in other means, you know, not their culture. What is it? their st- their stability was so great that ultimately. If I start a war in Through the Ages, that just means I have given you an objective. By the end of the era, you've either got to get your military up to a strong enough level so you don't suffer any losses, or you have to get your structure up to where you effectively don't suffer any losses, or you can ignore both of those things and get so much resources and so crazy rich that you don't mind losing some of those resources. I think that's awesome. The important thing is, I don't lose any of my engine, no matter what. And I think that's brilliant, uh, and it's, it's, it's so awesome. But there are other things that make Nation awesome as well. Um, although, man, I haven't played Nations for several years. But I, I, I really like... The fact, and this is a huge advantage as far as I'm concerned. Some people hate this. They make they think this is why it's weaker than Through the Ages. I love the fact that not all cards will come out, especially since I only play it as a two-player game. But it's at any player count, you will not see all the cards. Um, and that's in stark contrast to Through the Ages, you will see every single card no matter what. Everything will come into play. And I think that incentivizes a kind of obsessive play style where, oh, I've got to memorize every single card, and okay, this card hasn't come out yet, and this and that and the other. And it, and it becomes 
Not deterministic, because of course the cards come out in an unpredictable order, but it doesn't feel natural and organic to me that you know this event is going to happen. Oh, it hasn't happened yet? It'll probably happen next round, and I can plan for it. In Nations, every time you play, it's going to feel so different, because, hey, you know what? This time, there were very few opportunities for war. Or there were very few colonization opportunities. Or, oh my gosh, the wonders, they just didn't stop coming. You know, or whatever. I mean, you're going to get this kind of variety. I love that. There's so much more unique experience from game to game. And I think that's a strength Nations has uh, in in a big, big way. Of course, Through the Ages has a really great reprint. It looks a lot nicer. Uh, There's a lot more people who play it. Oh, another great thing about Nations. Very easy to set up. It is a pain and a half to set up Through the Ages, which I wonder is in part why its app implementation is so popular. So there's a lot of reasons that Nations is, as far as I'm concerned, hugely superior for my taste over Through the Ages. All righty. Nick. Hello, Nicholas. Uh, you notice I've got a column of fire on display on my game shelf. Uh, Nicholas owns the other two games in the series, the uh, Pillars of the Earth series, the Ken Follett novel series, but has yet to try a column of fire. How is column compared to the other two, which is Pillars of the Earth and World Without End? How would I rank them and why? Okay, well, column of fire is by far the best. It is great. It um, has no weaknesses. Now, you can go watch my run-through. I did a run-through for Column of Fire, and I'll tell you what I thought of it. But both of the earlier games come from a time in um, the development of our hobby where two-player gaming was not viewed as a high-priority list item. You know, in, in the time of Settlers of Catan, why would anybody be playing... With, if you want to play a two-player game, you'll go play Magic the Gathering. If you're going to play a board game, you're going to at least have three players. So who cares about two-player support? And that is so blatantly on display in Pillars of the Earth and World Without End, both of which are fantastic designs and really, really ahead of their time. I mean, they feel very modern, um, but they are... Terrible two-player games. Absolutely atrocious. It's so obvious that the uh, designers did not give that the the first, second, or third thought. Um, as opposed to a column of fire, which uh, where Michael Renick, well, I don't know. I don't know if he was listening to me, but I certainly complained about it. A column of fire is, is wonderfully scaled. So if you, but I mean, you might be thinking, oh, I'll never play a game less than four players anyway. So I don't care about that. So how would I rate them as a four-player game? Well, I can't really say because I've only played any of them as a two-player game. I know I think I've played Pillars of the Earth as a three or four-player game once a million years ago. Um, so I'm just gonna have to write. So, uh, <sighs> Call of Fire does just get better with more players. I think it's going to be the best game. It certainly is the best board. I love the board, but hey, you can watch my top 10 boards. It's one of my favorite boards of all time. I love the forced perspective of it and the almost playfulness of it. But, um, you know, I mean, what's it? Uh, World Without End, that card action selection mechanism where I have to put a card down and, uh, you know, there's I- I'm giving myself stuff, but I'm also giving stuff to everybody else around the table. That is so brilliant. I really, really like that idea so much. I mean, Pillars of the Earth is fine, too. You know, with uh, the, you know, pulling uh, the, 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 the guys out of the bag and, you know, it's, it, the worker placement's fine, whatever, but the, uh, you know, that dial is really neat. Honestly, I do think probably World Without End, if 
it were to ever get a reprint and be modernized, and you know some of its old fashionedness go- went, you know, got sandpapered away and got a, uh, you know, and you know, kind of got a new modern. You know, obviously it looks great, but yeah, you know, I'm just talking about in terms. I think it might be the best game. It certainly, I think, is probably the most clever. It has the most clever central mechanism that I like a lot. But it has a lot of problems. It does not have near enough variety in the cards. I mean, you just see the same things over and over and over again. The two-player mode is terrible and whatnot. But I think it could be the best. As it is right now, there's no denial. As far as I'm concerned, it's easy. Column of Fire, um, Pillars of the Earth, because... It's not official, but there's a halfway decent two-player house rule that everybody agrees is the way you should play it. And I've played it, and it's okay, but the market is terrible. Um, but I, I, as it is right now, with the rules as written, Column of Fire, Pillars of the Earth, and World Without End. But if Renick were to revisit, if there was some kind of anniversary for the Ken Follett novels coming up, and Renick, uh, you know, does a, a super box set of all three of them, I think World Without End probably could be the best one. And eh, tough to say about Column of Fire. And Column of Fire is is still the uh, second best. Again, go watch my run-through to see why. I think that's where I'd put him. Uh, um, Yeah. Okay. Interesting question. Jack. All right. Jack is looking into Steve Finn's School of Sorcery, which is a re-implementation of Institute of Magical Arts, which we love so much. He didn't say that. I always, I should point out, folks, I do a terrible job of reading these as written. I change pronouns, all kinds of stuff. Hopefully, it's, it's for my own benefit as so much as anything else. All right. All right. Anyway, um, School of Sorcery slash Institute of Magical Arts uh, strikes Jack as a mean tug of war game. Jack and his wife are more on the Care Bear side, like us, and was surprised to see our glowing review. Uh, is he missing something about the game that takes the edge off? It seems you're all about fighting over sorcery cards and tricking your opponent about where focus, uh, you know, where, where to focus, uh, taking one out from under them. I assume it must be related to how you view auction games or hate drafting. Me and my wife uh, might be more Care Bear than if that than us, if that's possible. That you know, it's it, it's a, it's a good observation, Jack. Yes, someday. Someday I will do a top 10 games that my wife and I enjoy in spite of the fact that there's negative player interaction. And Institute of Magical Arts, or the soon-to-be-updated School of Sorcery, will be high on that list. It is a mean game. Um, but the gameplay itself is so good. It, it basically, it elevates... Uh, you know, it elevates. It's so good. We will accept the fact that we are fighting tooth and nail and trying to trick each other and um, all the rest of it because it is a straight up area control game where we're trying to vie for control over the equivalent of Professor Snape and Professor McGonagall and the the, the Sorcerer's Stone. I mean, it might as well be a Harry Potter game. But um, it's the you know, and more than anything else, it is these we. I love, and I think my wife does too, but I, it is one of my favorite mechanisms, simultaneous su- action selection and reveal. Love that to pieces. And so the idea of I roll all my dice, but you get to see all my dice. Um, you know I've got two sixes and a four and a two or whatever, but you don't see what cards I've assigned to those. And you have to de- you have to decide how you're going to deploy those dice in your cards face down based on what you think I might do. And you have imperfect information, and you've got to get into my head. 
and uh, and then eventually we'll reveal everything with a flourish, and boom. Um, if you played well, you have scuppered my plans, or at least slowed me down, or stayed away from a thing, and I've overpaid for something that you kind of abandoned because you ended up looked like you were going to go for that, and you ended up not even doing something there. It was a it was a ruse. These are things we should not like, um, but I love them. I deep down. Well, it's it's. It, I love getting into Jen's head and thinking about what she's thinking. That is a form of interaction I very much enjoy. And while I wish it didn't have to come at her pain, in Student Magical Arts is you know. And there, oh gosh, there's that other mode too where when we end up tying, we have this extra little kind of like sudden death playoff thing that almost feels like professional sports where we're hiding the dice behind our card. Now we're hiding the dice and revealing them instead of hiding the cards and revealing them. It, it, it comes down to that. It's the same reason we love Fresco and Dungeon Pets and um, you know Roll for the Galaxy. That moment where we make all our plans and we reveal with a flourish and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. It's so great. Do I wish it was in something other than an area control game? Definitely. But we will put up with the area control because it is such a beautiful implementation of one of our favorite mechanisms. Simultaneous action selection. That's what it comes down to. And I think... Your analysis is correct. And if you're even more Care Bear than us, unless you, like us, have a same deep abiding love for that core design, that one core element, I think you should probably stay away. Because, yeah, it is definitely on the meaner end of things. Probably one of the meanest games we own. Um, right. Although, other players would say, what are you talking about? There's that, that game doesn't even have a mean bone in its body. But you know what I'm talking about, Jack, if you're a Care Bear. All right. Good question. Uh, Daniel has... A gaming-related question. Have I ever played a character that I really like thematically, but does not jive with me mechanically? Uh, For me, it's the Cthulhu face in Gloomhaven. Uh, Probably my favorite character thematically, mechanically. Just I have to. I have not played the Cthulhu face one. Um, How about vice versa? And for uh, Dan, it's the Argent Adept from Sentinels. I assume that's Sentinels of the Multiverse. I, I played one game of Sentinels of the Multiverse and hated it. Don't like bard characters, but the way he works mechanically uh, makes him my favorite character ever. Ooh, strong words. Okay, good question. Um, you know, and, and certainly the first thing that pops into my head was the... Um, I really liked... I can't remember the name of the, of the class. It's the rock-creating one. I want to say it's the Savas or something like that. You're a rock creature and you can create rocks and you make boundaries and you throw rocks around and they blow up and stuff like that. I so love the idea of that creature. But uh, um, it is its implementation where there's just this stupid... It's, it is literally the worst thing in all of Gloomhaven. The rule for them that, hey, when you're creating new rocks and obstacles and boundaries, you are not allowed to do it in such a way that you make... Uh, you always have to leave a path open for enemies. And that is so dumb. It breaks verisimilitude. It just feels wrong. It's a crowbarred... And there's no good reason for it. Because all you have to do is say that enemies treat the uh, player-generated rocks... As um as obstacles, which means they will or um or, or I forget. I mean, somebody pointed this out. You either treat them as obstacles or traps, which means they will never walk through them unless they absolutely have to. So they will serve their function. They'll take the long way around. You can control them, but if you completely cut them off, they'll say, "Okay, fine, we'll just cross right over it." And um yeah, I think it's like rough terrain you have to do because otherwise you become too powerful if they were objects. And hey, that's Jen calling. Uh, hang on, folks. Okay. 
Issue resolved. Where are we? Okay. <laughs> yes, so I, I don't remember the name of the rock creatures. That rule is so dumb and could have been so fixed. I mean, I hated it so much that it's I mean, we actually played the played it wrong for a while because why would that be the rule? And when I eventually found it out, I just stopped playing right off the bat. Or maybe I, I think I just tried to retire him as fast as possible. No, I think I actually bailed and I didn't retire him because it was so disheartening. So that one, I mean yeah, that because that that should be one of the coolest creatures in the game, and it's not because of a stupid, stupid design decision. So other way around, which was I like the design but hate the creature because I just talked about liking the creature but hating the design. Like the design, hate the creature. I don't know. I don't. I'm trying to think. I don't think there's any kind of archetypes I don't... I mean, there's archetypes I certainly prefer. I always prefer to be a support class if I can. Um, I mean, But I don't mind. I like being a tank, too. So that's a tougher one for me to do. Um, let's see. Trying to think of characters in games, which means I have to think about... Like okay, Legends of Andor. No. I liked everything there. And if anything, I like the characters and hated the dice rolling combat, except for the archer, which is awesome. The mage is okay. But I don't think I've got one going the other way. What was yours? Oh, that you were forced to play. You, you like the character, even though you don't like being support. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of like them all. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know me. If you watch my show, I like everything. I don't have a critical bone in my body. So I don't think I have... I don't, it doesn't go the other way for me, vice versa. Alrighty. Continuing, Daniel says, Number two, if you remember, which characters have you unlocked in Gloomhaven? Um, using spoilers... Or using symbols to keep spoiler free. What characters do you like the most besides Cragheart? Uh, oh, Cragheart! That's the one! That's the one I was talking about! Alrighty. Which characters were stinkers? I, I'm the only... Let's see. What have we done? We've played... I played all six basics. And... The, and um, the, let's see, oh man, the, I don't remember the, the character faces. I'll say, I'll call him the bear, and um, Sonny, and the, the, the bard, and, oh, this is tough. This is tough. <sighs> yeah, you did preface it with if I remember, and I don't. Um, those are the ones that come to my head. I know we've played a couple of other ones as well. Haven't done the Sawbone guy. Um, oh, you know what I can do? I haven't done the Cthulhu face, which either you or somebody else meant. Yeah, you mentioned Cthulhu face. What I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly search for Rotto Gloom Haven Painted Mini. Because if you watch that video, uh, there is a wonderful person who painted for free all of our miniatures. For Gloomhaven. And I thought it was so awesome. I made a video about it. And that's when I learned I do not like the world of miniature painters because they're jerks. Total jerks. People just ripped it apart, um, ignoring the fact that the guy had done it for free over the space of a week and said, oh, wow. Then, you know, it's like, oh, God, you guys are all such snobs. I hate all of you. Let's see. Oh, okay. The, um, the, what do you call it? The reaches hand into portal. Played that one. Jen played that one and did not work for her at all. If I recall correctly, she's a uh, she summons a lot of stuff 
and Jen. I love summoning. My first character was the rat guy, and um, you know, I, I was always I was always had like three summons on the go at any given time, and loved it to pieces. And Jen, you know, I mean, but summoning in Gloomhaven is a tough thing to play well. It's so counterintuitive to the way any game has ever worked before, and so I loved it. But Jen was playing that one and hated it. Let's see what else. What else? Uh, yep, there's the saw bony, the, the saw guy. Um, da, da, da. Don't think I've played that guy. Scrapping ahead. There's Cthulhu. Um, right there's a Sunny. Loved Sunny. A perfect character for me. Um, right. Da, da, da. What else? Oh, and there's the bard. Jen loved her bard so much. Uh, you know, there's, I call him the bear, which again, Jen unfortunately took. That was a terrible mistake. I thought that character looked really cool. Um, for reasons I just talked about, Jen didn't like. Let's see. And, da, da, da. All right. And I'm going to call him, you know, the, uh, the, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. If you, you know what, you know what I mean? Um, then we, we played him as well. So those ones we played. And honestly, the Cragheart I had a problem with for the reason I talked about. Jen had a problem whenever she found herself with a summoning character, hated him, whereas I love him. Oh, and uh, oh, and then we played the Circles, the new character, which I thought was a very cool character, but man, that is a tough character to play well. That is such a weird character. And then we played a couple of Frosthaven. We played a couple of Jaws of Lion characters now. We're playing the... Um, of course, that game only comes with four. She... Uh, what are they? That's what we're playing right now. We, we played through five missions. I am playing the... Oh, uh, the, the really crazy... The, the, the mind controller, who is just constantly controlling the bad guys and constantly controlling their teammates. I'm really enjoying it because, again, it's, I almost... I mean, I go through... I've gone through several missions never drawing from my deck once ever. And just all about manipulating other people. Really like that. And Jen is playing... What is hers? Oh, the uh, Demolitionist, I think. And it harkens back to her first Quattrol, and she loves gadgets and gizmos and stuff like that. And then we, um, for Frosthaven, she played the Banner Spear. And we had a problem with Frosthaven, but it's because we hadn't played Gloomhaven in so long. And Frosthaven is like the most complex characters you've ever seen. And so, I mean, I, I didn't have a problem with them, but Jen was really kind of taken aback. Um, which is why we're really happy we're playing Jaws of the Lion now, is kind of getting ourselves warm back up into the uh, flow of the gloom or the frost. All right. Uh, but anyway, so that was some of that stuff. Now if I can get back to your email. What are the three most unique and interesting characters I've ever played in any game? <sighs> three, huh? Three, huh? Hmm. Um, you know, I think... I mean, I'd have to think about this long and hard. And I'd have to think about every game I've ever played. I've played literally thousands of games at this point. And while a lot of them don't have characters, I mean, it's still, it'd be a lot of research. The ones that pop into my head, there are some really funky heroes you can play in Aeon's End. You know, I mean, which is a deck builder. Somewhere, I mean, your starting deck is just garbage. Like, the, the guy who starts with, um, I forget, is it nothing but, nothing but Sparks? And no crystals, so he can't buy anything. But all his powers come to, like, consuming crystals to do weird. That guy was really funky and weird. Oh, and there's another guy who is a, a crazy schizophrenic time traveler. Um, and that was really interesting, the way that was uh, implemented in the game, how you had control over your deck. Um, there was just, I mean, well, there's so much stuff for... Um, uh, 
what do you call it? Uh, Aeon's End, because Aeon's End has, has what has like 20, 30 characters, and they keep on coming up with new and interesting ideas. It's it's probably going to be a combination of those ones. Uh, in the most recent, which isn't out yet, but we played the prototype. There's uh, two characters who are star-crossed lovers, and um, you know, so they're perfect to play with each other because they've got, they they in a deck builder. It's, it feels like the deck builder equivalent of they complete each other's sentences, which is was a really neat, and we really enjoyed that since Jen and I kind of are like that. In real life. So I, I can't say specifics, but it's probably going to be Aeon's End stuff. I'm just endlessly impressed by the amount of variety and creativity they keep on throwing in. And that's not... That, I don't want to cast shade on Gloomhaven because there's an endless amount of variety and creativity there too. But I've, I'm blown away by Aeon's End stuff. So it'd probably be three from there. Okay. Moving right along to uh, Moran. Right. Who had a bajillion questions last time. It looks like this time he only has a couple. Um, if there's a game about growing cannabis as a party game, do you think I would make a review of it? Um, if another player did a review, would you watch it? If yes or no, explain why. That's kind of a borderline personal question, but you did couch it in gaming, so I'll leave it here. Um, it's, I mean, first of all, I am all for legalization. I have been ever since my 20s. Um, I was a, I remember I was crazy the first time we ever had our wills drawn up. You know, this was back in the 90s, in my early 20s. I wanted my worldly possessions to go towards, um, you know, movements and uh, organizations devoted to ending the, uh, the war against drugs. Uh, and specifically weed, because uh, you know the you know because of all the pro- the war against drugs is so terrible and has destroyed so many lives and continues to do so to this very day. Um, and uh, you know, hey, it's part and parcel with all with a big part of uh, you know yet another problem that um, you know. Well, anyway, I, I, I okay, keep it in game. So anyway, I've always been pro that. That said, I have never imbibed. I've never... Uh, I, I had a drink of beer once when I was a little kid. My dad gave me a Coors and I thought it was gross. So I've never really drunk. I've never done drugs. But I have no problem with it. I've got no problem being around people who are doing it. I just know myself. I'm very weak-willed. And if I got a taste for it, I would be doomed. I come from a family of addicts. So I've always just chosen, hey, ignorance is bliss. If I don't know what I'm missing, I can't be missing much. So I've got no problem with the subject matter. Um... I have to admit, the kind of counterculture, sticky weed type stuff is just not personally appealing to me. And I, I was very surprised when we were playing, I think it was Brewmasters, that I thought to myself, everything about this game I like. I should really enjoy this game. Why don't I like it? Oh, because it's about beer. And I think, even though I have no problem with beer... I'm just not interested in it. I think I would not be interested in a cannabis-themed you know, farming simulation. Although there certainly could be very interesting stuff going on with it, you know, especially uh, you know, in today's world. And certainly, well, the other thing, you said a party game, not interested. I have, obviously, I'm not going to cover a party game because if I can't play it, if it doesn't play at its best or you know, comparably well as a two-player game, and what, what party game does that? So it, it would be a pass for those reasons, I think. Um, yeah. And I don't think Jen would have a problem with the subject matter. But, yeah, I, I, I just don't think it'd be a good fit for us. And certainly, yeah, you say party game, so no. Okay. Christian, first of all, has attached a dog photo. Oh, no, Jen's not here. I will have, try to have to remember to show this picture of this adorable pooch. But anyway, um, question. 
if Joe Rogan all of a sudden got into board games and asked me to go on his podcast to top board games, would I go on? Why or why not? Yes, of course I would. Uh, it would be such a huge signal boost. I mean, I would instantly probably increase my viewership by 20%. Just instantly. Um, because, well, uh, yes, I, I'm sure I would. I mean, I, if I were one of the first, um, you know, I mean, Joe Rogan might do that. But after a year or so, I don't think he would have any more viewers on that podcast than I have on mine. But the initial surge of interest would be huge. And I would certainly like to take advantage of that. In the same way that I very luckily took advantage of the fact that in my first year of Rotto Runs Through, when I was still doing everything with a phone, Penny Arcade mentioned me in passing in one of their blogs because I had done a video for Ground Floor. And they said, this video of Ground Floor really helped me decide whether I wanted to back it. And I, I, mean, you know, I, could, I could see the spike. in. So of course I would. I, yeah, totally. Alrighty. Uh, why or why not? So that would be why. Um, I don't know why I wouldn't. I have to admit, I don't really know much about uh, Joe Rogan. I've never... Uh, what? I watched... What have I watched? I watched when Yang was on, of course. Although I did not discover Yang through Joe Rogan. I already knew about... Or I'd already known about Yang before I ever got around to the Joe Rogan thing. I've, I've seen snippets of him doing stuff. And I think sometimes he's a force for good and sometimes he's a force for bad. Uh, sometimes he's a force for just total blatant ignorance, and sometimes he's a really open-minded individual. I think, in short, Joe Rogan, like all of us, is a complex and sometimes self-contradictory person because he's a human being. Um, so I don't know any reason I wouldn't want to do it, but there'd be a big reason to do it. All right, does his weed smoking bother me? What is this, the weed episode? No, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, <clears throat> for the record, I used to like Rogan, but find him intolerable now. I mean, you'd have to tell me why. But, I mean, that's getting too far away from games. Uh, this is probably shouldn't have been in the game section. But you labeled this email game question. But you did say, game question, parenthesis, I think. And I trusted you, Christian. I trusted you. For better or for worse, he's a bit of a tastemaker. Do you think someone like him getting interested in Euros would be a good or a bad thing? Oh, it'd be fantastic. Jeez, I mean, yeah, yeah, it'd be huge. It'd be huge if... um. If uh, Tom Hanks started talking about Agricola all the time and how he can't stop playing it, that would be amazing. Um, yeah, of course. I, I think it's only for the best. Uh, you know, because we're growing all the time, but there's still, what, 7 billion people? 7.5 billion people on this planet? The vast majority of them still think all board games are Monopoly. So anything to get over that hump is great. If Joe Rogan is a uh, force to help that, great. Do it. Do it, Joe. Alrighty, uh, and then Christian follows up. I want board games to become popular, but do I think there's a point where popularity could be detrimental, whereby designers start tailoring games to one audience? I don't think so. I think the more successful the industry becomes, the more freedom and flexibility um, designers have. Board game designers, by and large, cannot take a risk on something. I'm thinking of video games. I don't know very many video games, but like Papers, Please. I think most people, or even have a passing familiarity with video games, you've probably heard of Papers, Please, which is such a wildly experimental game. But because video games are so hugely popular, that thing found an audience, a big audience, and a guy was able to you know, make a living off of it. And um, that's because video games are so big. I think if board games tomorrow, if I could snap my fingers and they were as big as video games, oh my god. That would be transformative. Um, you, know, I, you know, people could, you know, could, I think the opportunities for really far out avant-garde experience. Now, don't get me wrong. That also means we'd have a lot of, you know, uh, you know well, 
I was about to say mass market, but currently mass market means boggle and sorry. Uh, mass market would change completely. But no, I would see nothing but good coming out of that. The bigger the potential audience, the better. I, yeah, I, I think. All right, Jack is back. In my original review of Homesteaders and in my top 10 Westerns list, I said I got rid of it. Um, in the top 10 list, I allude to the upcoming expansion, which is called New Beginnings. I'm guessing... Uh, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jack then adds, I'm guessing it was New Beginnings. I should just read these! Alrighty. Uh, and how it would solve setup variability that I had a problem with. You assume it did because Homesteaders is now on my ratings list and not in my gone list. Hence, I must own it. But where is the run-through rundown of the expansion? If I didn't do a video, what are my thoughts? I assume you really liked it. Probably had a go of it. Um, right. Yes. So, yes. Uh, TMG did send me a copy to uh, take a look at. And I got, you know, and also uh, another copy of Homesteaders because Homesteaders I ultimately did get rid of. I think Homesteaders was one of the ones, no, I think I got rid of it before we left Malta, I think, because I just knew I'd never play it again because the setup variability was just so meh. So, Homesteaders, I did get to play with Jen and I loved it. It was everything I hoped it would be, although in a completely unexpected way that really surprised me in a pleasant way. Um, and I did cover it, but perhaps not in the way you're expecting. I'm on Google right now. I'm doing a search for Rotto Roundup Homesteaders. And that takes me to the April 2020 Roundup. 24 games in 80 minutes. I don't know if you've noticed, Jack. Uh, for about two years now, I think? Or no, just a year. I don't know. I'd have to look. I forget. Time loses all meaning. But for a while now, at the end of every month, I do a roundup video where I talk about every game Jen and I have played over the preceding four weeks. Many of those games I talk about were games that I did run-throughs for. Some of them were not. And I am finding this is a very effective way for me to do a much better job of covering all of the review copies that come through the door. Because before now, at any given time, I would have upwards of 200 games in my queue, and I'm like just drowning and with and you know just riddled with guilt that you know these games are just sitting like um you know sitting on my shelf sometimes for years with it because I just don't have time. Roundups have given me the time because now Jen and I can play it and I can at the end of the month just do a quick little, you know, two or three minute chat about what I liked. And I don't have to spend the better part of a day or more, you know, setting up, doing run-throughs, testing it, you know, supporting all that. So yes, I did cover it. It's in the Roundup and um, it's awesome. So that's why you missed it. You must not be following the roundups. I am happy to say roundups every month seem to be by far the most popular video I do because it's just quick little um, snippets, uh, bite-sized chunks of a whole bunch of games, some of which you can then go watch the run-through, some of them you can't. Homesteaders is probably one I can't. But here's the thing. Here's what I'm doing. When, you know, in the case of Homesteaders or other games that I have covered in a roundup and I don't have time to do a run-through for, I'm taking them off of my um, unfilmed list. If you go to unfilmed.rado.com, you can see a list of all the games I've got that I haven't filmed yet. If you go to PubSent, it's all the ones that PubSent. If you go to bought.rado.com, it's all the ones I've bought. Or unfilmed is all of them. I'm taking um, games that go into the roundup off of those lists, but I am leaving them on my request geek list, request.rado.com. And if Homesteaders or any of these other games that got covered in a roundup should ever get enough thumbs that it rises to the top, that's when I'll get the game out and I'll do a full run-through. 
Uh, let's take a look and see how Homestairs is doing. If you go to thumbs.rado.com, I got URLs for everything. And then do a search for beginnings. New beginnings. Homestairs New Beginnings, unfortunately, has 12 thumbs right now. The uh, current high watermark is um, around 100. Actually, the biggest one is Targi, the expansion, has 136, but it isn't available yet. As soon as it becomes available, I will cover it because it's got the most thumbs. But otherwise, um, you're at the top of the list if you're in the 70, 80, 90 thumbs bracket. Someday, if New Beginnings gets up to the top of the list, it will get a deeper bit of coverage. But in the meantime, the Roundup is where it will have to live. And that's actually... I guess I'm kind of announcing this now because this is a decision I've only made in the last few months, quite frankly, that I finally decided to take all these rounded-up games off of my to-do list so I could make room for all the other things that keep coming in. Um, which is why, for the first time in years, I'm less to, I'm down to under... Let's see how many I've got right now. Uh, if I go to PubSent, pubsent.rado.com, P-U-B-S-E-N-T, at this point, I have 48 games and expansions that I have yet to cover in some form. That is the best I've been in years, and it makes me feel so good. So, that's why you missed it. Check those roundups. They're, uh, well, I was going to say they're awesome, but they're not, because they're a lot of work to do. I am trying to find ways to make it a little bit more palatable, uh, using, uh, what do you call it? Not Premiere. PowerPoint. Um, but I'm still learning the ropes on that. Anyway, that's the situation. That's why you missed it. And, oh, oh, I guess I should answer your original question. Why is it good? Because it has set up variability, but in a really interesting and cool way, which I talk about in the roundup. Okay. Uh, Legacy Game Mechanism on Board Game Geek says Alan. Uh, Alan, that was the name of the email. Has been watching me on the C2C and Alaboom. And besides the point, uh, C2C is Corner to Corner, the weekly show I do with Tom Vassell. Alaboom is another weekly show I do with Lance Meister and a bunch of other ne'er-do-wells, all on YouTube Live. Right, anyway, so you've been watching me on these live shows, and it's reminded Alan that I've submitted a request, or that, you know, that he submitted a request to change Oath, which is a game, from Legacy to Campaign, but it was denied. Alan thinks that I've agreed in the past that legacy games have to include permanence. But whoever responded on BGG apparently thinks the definition has expanded, quote-unquote, even though it has not on BGG itself, both for the mechanism and the family, and campaign games already include element that legacy games have. Anyway, recently checked again, and Adventure Inc. is also... Well, first of all, I applaud you for trying to fix that. I would suggest doing it again. If you are 100% certain that Oath has no destroyable stuff in it, and I think you're right, I don't think it does, it should not be a legacy game. In fact, you have spurred me to action, Alan. O-A-T-H. I've still got Board Game Geek open. Open. Uh, Chronicle. Let's see here. Let's look. It is... It has... Mecha- it is a legacy game. All right. D-T-T. Players full feature. Solo mode. No script and narrative. Predetermined endpoints. The rich history. All right. Um... Yep, I'm going to edit this. I am going to say, this is not a legacy game. And I support you, and I'll probably get a half a geek gold out of this. Maybe they'll listen to me. Alrighty, legacy game. As I understand it, there are no permanent slash permanent change elements in this game. And that's the core defining feature of a legacy game. Without permanent changes, 
you've got a campaign game as defined by BGG. Smiley face. Never hurts to throw in a smiley face. I am the king of smileys. Submit. We'll see what happens. Anyway, though, that wasn't even your question. That was just a call to action, and I answered the call. All right, I recently checked again, and Adventure Inc. is also listed as a legacy game. I rewatched the top 25 most anticipated games of the year. You've commented that My City is the only true legacy game, and I don't think it is, actually, that I knew of so far coming out. If that's true, should legacy game be removed from that as well? I honestly don't know, but I figure you would since I've helped work on it. Yes, folks, I am not in any way, shape, or form officially designing any games, but I am friends with the designer of Plunderous and Adventure Inc., and a week does not go by that I don't end up spending at least two hours on Skype with him, answering questions, giving advice, making suggestions for those two games. Um, I he hasn't because he's about to launch Plunderous. He hasn't talked to me about Adventure Inc. in a while. He's put that on the back burner. At one point, uh, Adventure Inc. definitely did have permanent changeable stuff, and probably at that point is when he listed it on Board Game Geek. I have no idea if it still does or doesn't. If it eventually doesn't. I will be sure to get that legacy removed because I do think definitions are important and the definition of legacy has not expanded. Even though there are several developers, designers, and apparently at least one moderator on BoardGameGeek that thinks permanence is not part of legacy, it's in the name! You can't have a legacy if things can be changed. So, yeah, as far as I know... Well, last I knew, Adventure Inc. did have some stuff, but maybe that's been taken out, and maybe that should come out, too. If I remember the next time I talk uh, to him, I'll ask, hey, so is it really a legacy game? I don't think it is. Or or, or is it still? Inquiring minds want to know. Nigel has sent an awesome picture of a dog. Oh, look at Charlie. That is an adorable lab. Oh, where is Jen? She's missing out on all this good doggy. Alrighty, but in the meantime... Nigel's question is about digital implementation of board games with the recent launch. Well, before we do that, let's go on ahead and make sure we're still recording, because that went into the background. Yes, we are. Phew. Way to go, Audacity. Um, with the recent launch of Wingspan Digital, uh, Nigel's been wondering whether more game developers should look into digital versions of their game as an essential part of design and development. For example, as Nigel understands it, Terra Mystica Online has allowed data to be collected from thousands of games and has helped shape the development of the Gaia Project. And Terra Mystica itself, because as I understand it, official errata rebalancing some of the original characters has been released in large part due to all that play data they've got. All right, um... DTT. Similarly, the online platform of Agricola sees players playing hundreds of thousands of games and, ima- and Nigel imagines... That at least some of that has helped towards the revised edition. I, I'm sure. I'm sure you're right. With the speed and convenience that online play brings, do you, as a game developer and designer, feel that enough designers are making use of such tools to help sharpen up their games, either in the initial development stage or when revised games for second editions? I do not believe so. Uh, Nigel has no insight into how much uh, developers are already doing this, but it strikes him that nowadays the opportunity to for playtesting in this way is too valuable to pass up for those who can make it happen. Any thoughts or insights? And P.S. Charlie is awesome. Okay, that's that's the Labrador, who's an adorable little pup. Okay, look at him all curled up in a ball. Don't often see Labradors curled up in a ball like that. Too busy loping around like the big goofballs they are. So, I think you are right. Um, and I think it is a real shame that this is not a tool that is leveraged to good effect more often. But I do think there's a very good reason for that. Digital development is hard. And, um, you know, 
Individual designers, they don't have a means to be able to really leverage that kind of thing. Um, you know, I mean, heck, Asmodee had a whole division and they closed that digital division down. It is expensive and it is incredibly difficult to be successful. I, I you know, so I guess one, I don't think anybody in the industry has looked at it as a potential loss. Hey, look, we know we're going to lose money by releasing this digital version of this game, but we're going to do it anyway solely so that we can get more balancing um, feedback. It's too expensive to do that at this point. Now I think table or uh, tabletopia. Here's the thing: I am shocked, shocked and amazed, Nigel, that every single game that has ever been published is not available to play right now on tabletopia. And I'll tell you why: the developers of tabletopia in Russia, the Russian developed uh, platform. For um, offer a service for only three hundred measly U.S. dollars, they will make a complete digital implementation of your game. They will scan all the stuff. They will turn it into three D aspects. They will do everything they need to be done. Three hundred dollars is nothing in the overall cost of development. And every developer, every publisher should have their entire catalog. They should, every one of them should throw a few thousand bucks and then the uh, Tabletopia guys will realize, oh crap, we've got to raise the rates here because we are way undercharging for this service. I mean, quite frankly, I would, that's a service I think they would charge twelve or fifteen hundred bucks to do, but they're only charging three hundred bucks last I heard. I know because my friend, uh, the Plunderous guy, paid three hundred bucks to do this for Plunderous. And it's like, geez, that's nothing. And so, yes, of course, Maracaibo, or Kanban, or Coimbra, or Gizmos, or Foreign Trajanum, or Spirium, or Shakespeare, or Coloma, or Spirits of the Rice Paddy, or, you know, I'm just looking around at the first things I see on my shelves. These should all be playable on Tabletopia right now. And it's a madness to me that they are not, that every publisher out there isn't taking advantage of this. Um, and just, you know, effectively, almost for free, almost for free, in the grand scheme of things, getting beautiful um, digital implementations of their games up and running. Now, unfortunately, I don't believe Tabletopia or Tabletop Simulator, uh, pox on Tabletop Simulator, it's all about Tabletopia, because they do it right. They are not a piracy platform for board games, unlike Tabletop Simulator. I... No, I say to them. I mean... (sighs) If they would just do the right thing, Board Game Geek does not let me post a manual, a PDF manual I've got for a game unless I prove that I have permission from the publisher. If Tabletop Simulator, which they could do this, they could require proof um, from publishers before they will allow modules on their platform, I'd be all over the Tabletop Sim. But they don't. And I think... I do not I do not care for it, Sam. I am. It's just rampant piracy. Um... Anyway, though, sorry, neither here nor there. What was I saying? Yes, so I don't think either of these platforms have robust data tracking. And so if Tabletopia were smart, and they are smart people, I mean, obviously the big thing they need is um, you know, rules reinforcement. That's the problem with both of these platforms, that there's very little of it. And that's apps. And that's why apps are so hard, because they, they do it. Tabletopia... And Tabletop Simulator have to get... I mean, 
while the rules in reinforcement is like the holy grail for them, stat tracking, I think, would be a much easier thing to bite off. And if Tabletopia says, hey, for 300 bucks, we'll get you a fully functional digital version of your game that does full stat tracking and monitoring, would you like that, publisher? I would think they would say yes. And then publishers would be able to do what you were hypothesizing about. Sorry, I really went off on a rant there for no particular reason. Um, but yes, I think it's a great potential that is not being leveraged yet for 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 decent reasons. Okay. Antony, not the Antony, and Antony. Oh, let's just say Anthony. Tony says, now he says Anthony, uh, big fan, appreciate all the content. With the following caveats. It's my show. I can do whatever I want. Having fun in at one's career is a blessing. I should never feel pressure to change the show based on others' whims. Uh-oh. That's a bit of a caveat. Here's where Anthony says I'm doing everything wrong. Um, I think there's two parts to the issue folks are having with Ryan's contribution to um, the... Oh, right, right, right. Okay, yes. Uh, for folks who don't know, I just put up a top ten. And I had Ryan and Shay, the two contributors of my channel, and I told them before we started filming, hey guys, I want I want us to go at each other. I want us to make fun. I want this to be like um, you know, you know, a debate, but you know, like a good natured, silly, um, you know, making fun of each other debate because I personally enjoy that. Uh, you know, maybe that's because I spent 20 years in the video game industry and that was kind of my life. Maybe I kind of miss it. I don't know. But anyway, we did that. And um, Ryan did a great job. Shay was far too shy and polite. And I am not as quick-witted as Ryan. And so Ryan quickly became uh, public enemy number one because a small minority, and I'm assuming Anthony is in that minority of viewers, viewed it as him being an elitist, egotistical jerk. When in fact, he was playing the role of an elitist, egotistical jerk because I said, hey, I want you to just goof off and be silly because we're just here to have fun. Anyway, though, so uh, continuing with uh, Anthony's observations. First part is subjective, that humor, spirit of the show, um, that I go so far out of my way to be congenial and acknowledge the good, even in bad, mediocre games. And Shay thus far has lived up to the spirit of the show perfectly. Ryan's acerbic jokes and sarcastic prodding felt out of place with the show most of us are used to. Yes, it was. Which is why I stopped halfway through and said, by the way, folks, I should have led with this. This is going to be a um, a sarcastic and acerbic video where we are making fun of each other. If you don't like that, please feel free not to watch. I should have opened with that. I think I haven't gotten to where your, your your action points, uh, Anthony, but that was my mistake. It's totally my fault. I should have led with that. Of course, you're listening to this on a podcast. You've already heard this by now, and you heard that I did record an intro saying, please understand, there is no tension. Ryan is not an elitist, snobbish jerk. He was just poking fun. He was being silly. Anyway, though, sorry, continue. Ryan's acerbic jokes and sarcastic prodding felt out of place. It looks like uh, if you both enjoyed Bob Berger and South Park, it would probably still feel out of place if Bob Berger suddenly did South Park-style humor. I have to admit, I've never watched Bob's Burgers. I, I, I really should. Thus, Bob Burgers fans would be split into groups. Uh, some would enjoy it, some would hate it, and others would be fine with it and maybe didn't want uh, the show to change they love. Which is why, in that circumstance, the producers of Bob's Burgers should probably open with a, by the way, folks, this is an experimental episode where we're trying out some South Park-style humor. Please understand, this is not indicative of a change to the show, which is what I should have done. Everything was my fault. 
I screwed it up. Anyway, to your point. It's my show. You said I was having fun. We were. And if you want Ryan around, feel he's a good fit. Who cares if people find him hilarious, not funny? The vast majority of people did find him hilarious. And I base that on extensive market research, one, on the number of comments, but two, on the thumbs. That video, at this point, has a ratio of 94% positive response. And that, it tracks with all of my videos. All of my videos have a response from usually 92 to 95%. So I know for a fact the vast majority of viewers were totes fine with it. Uh, but anyway, let's continue. Alrighty. Uh, oh, went to sleep again. The other part, all right. Um, right. Okay, well, you, you were still laying the groundwork here. We haven't gotten to the questions yet. Oh my gosh, are you not going to have questions in here? I just scanned ahead. I don't see any question marks. Still, this is giving me a platform to talk about it because I think it's an interesting thing. All right, and by now, chances are you've already heard the top 10 because it's the uh, thing that's in the podcast stream right before this. Anyway, the other part is him interrupting Shay for the, oh, come on, antics about telestrations. Antics is a perfect word because that is what they were. They were antics. Anyway, let's continue. That part, I personally couldn't believe. I I believe has no place in the show, and I hope it never comes up again. There is no reason at all why he couldn't have waited for Shay to be done. And when he let loose with X's and even a real band... Uh, neckbeard comedy, uh, back and forth discussion. He couldn't have made uh, every point of joke he wanted to without disrupting Shay as he talked about the game he loves. I truly hope he never does that again. I think... Um, here's the deal. Anthony, I am assuming you did not watch all the way through to the end. And by the end, I mean after we finished the top 10 countdown, there is four minutes of raw, unedited audio and video, if you watch on YouTube, of the real Ryan. And if you watch that video and you see the real person Ryan is, I think you will... uh, This is one of the reasons I put that in there. Um, Because I want... Look, I mean, because he realized he made a mistake. He was incredibly apologetic. He was doubled over with guilt about how he had messed things up. That's the real Ryan. Ryan is a good person. I have known Ryan ever since... For over a year now, since we did the... um, The... What do you call it? The... Tiny Towns thing, which, by the way, was another video where we spent the whole time making fun of each other and each other's choices and trash-talking each other. Um, because I told him right up front, hey, don't be, don't be afraid to trash-talk me. I, I think that's going to be fun. I enjoy it. And um, anyway, though, so the real Ryan is in those final four minutes. And you see, that is a thoughtful, empathetic person um, who was literally putting on an act because I told him to. And he just did it really much better than either Shay or I could. If you go back and watch objectively, you will see there are plenty of times I am trying to make fun of Ryan. There are plenty of times Shay is trying to cut me down. Both Shay and I are just not very good at it because neither of us, I'll be honest, are anywhere near as funny as Ryan. Ryan is incredibly quick-witted. Uh, Ryan has given professional TED Talks. Um, or one professional TED Talk. Ryan is an amazing public speaker. And Ryan is an incredibly kind and caring father of two. And um, the Ryan that was on display was him basically, uh, to use your analogy, doing a South Park impersonation. Doing a Saturday Night Live sketch. Because he knew that's what I wanted. And he had no idea, and I had no idea, that there would be a very outspoken, including yourself, very small percentage of viewers who were taken aback by that because... You took it 
at face value that, oh no, this is the real Ryan, when I guarantee you, Anthony, I promise you that that is not the Ryan. That was Ryan putting on an act. And there's no, oh, but wait, you know, he can't be that good at that without that secretly being him. And it's just the real him that came out. That is not true. And for proof of that, I present to evidence the final four minutes of the second part of that video where the real Ryan, who is thoughtful and generous and caring and um, sympathetic to problems he may have caused other people, was on display. And he stopped doing the act that I... Well, I was about to say I was paying him, but I don't pay him. I, they both appeared for free. I pay both of these guys to do videos on my channel. And it ain't cheap to have them. Um, I'll say that right now. But they both agreed to do this for free. But anyway, sorry. Um, bah, bah, bah. Anyway, you, you, uh, long story short, you think that's what's driving the activity in the comments? I wouldn't have chimed in if not for that act, um, interaction. Just do sense. Have a great day. Thanks for all you do. It, it's totally cool, Anthony. Like I said, this is 100% my fault. And I, the moment it happened is during that video, after the telestrations thing, and I realized, oh my God. Because you remember, if you watch the whole thing, I said, I'm thinking about the, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the, I'm thinking about the comments. And Shay immediately thought that meant I was going to make fun of him because I was afraid people were going to comment the telestrations, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, because that's what we were doing. We were all joking with each other. We were for, fully expecting everything to be a joke at each other's expense because that was the marching orders we had. Oh, this drives me so insane. But anyway, Anyway, sorry. Sorry. I'm calming down. I'm calming down. Um, oh, shoot. I, I forgot. Okay. Um, when I said, oh my gosh, I'm thinking of the comments, what I was thinking of is a recent top 10 that Tom Vassell did with Z and a fellow named Travis Oates, who I've met in real life and who is a sweet and charming, warm person. If you go do a search for Dice Tower Travis Oates, and you'll find that, or top 10, you'll find that top 10. If you look at the th comment threads on that, it is everybody coming out of the woodwork saying they hate Travis and he is the worst person in the world because he had the gall to come on to Tom's channel and be sarcastic. I don't understand. I'm sorry. I do not understand when sarcasm, good-natured, light-hearted ribbing and sarcasm became a capital offense on YouTube. I understand it's not part and parcel of my channel, but... Um, interestingly and ironically, the number of times that I have been accused of being an abusive spouse because my wife has come on the show and I have gently ribbed and teased her, and yet people take that as, oh, wow, I wonder if he beats her. Because you, clearly he doesn't love her, um, and you know she needs to get out of that abusive relationship. When all I did was make fun of a choice she made in Dixit or whatever. I don't, I don't get it. It's people are very, very quick to assume the worst of other people. That's just a truism of human nature across the board. And I do think, I think, Anthony, you're guilty of it right here. You are assuming that Ryan, when he was um, being acerbic, or I forgot your exact terms, um, and using neckbeard comedy, that that was a true reflection of him when it wasn't. I'm sorry, folks. I didn't mean for this to go on so long. I didn't even know this was coming. Um, but... It's, it's really surprising. And what I, meant, what I meant to say is when I said, oh my God, I'm thinking of the comments, I was specifically thinking of the chat thread for Travis Oates. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be another Travis Oates situation. Oh my gosh. And so I very quickly tried to point out, folks, this is not a Travis Oates situation. We are all friends here. Please 
Trust me. Believe me when I tell you this. At which point, people promptly decided not to believe me. And it drives me absolutely insane. It's doubly ironic because Ryan, if you watch his videos, he is not acerbic or um, you know superior or haughty or any of that stuff. He is the epitome of professionalism. And in real life, he is a sweet, charming guy. But anyway, um, the ironic thing is, uh, one of the reasons I love his... Uh, what do you call him? I can't think of the word. His... Uh, how to play so much is because he puts a lot of humor in them. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I was like, yes, you should be on my channel because I, I find his videos so much more engaging because of the humor. And here's the deal. The first video that's going up on my channel is for the Whatnot Cabinet. And that one is very dry and he plays it very straight. And it, this is one of the reasons, because I knew this was going to be the first video, his introduction. I'm like, I really want people to see the funny side of Ryan. And so that's why I was like, hey, let's just have a funny video. Let's just have fun. Everybody make fun of everybody else because I think that's funny. That is something that makes me laugh out loud. I spent probably ten, close to 10 hours editing that video together. It was by far the hardest thing I have ever had to do on Rado Runs Through, and it has caused me more grief and stress than anything else because people are just jumping to conclusions and assuming the worst and literally ignoring me when I tell them that they're wrong, even though they weren't in the room. And, and, and they are making presumptions on behalf of Shay and on behalf of me that are false and erroneous. Boy, generally needs to be here to keep me under control when I get going. Sorry, Anthony, I'm not mad at you. I'm just really upset about the whole thing. So anyway, I wanted Ryan's... I'm um, funny, I, I, if that's going to be the first thing they saw, because for reasons, the, uh, the, uh, the whatnot cabinet is pretty dry. And so then, and I, when I realized, oh crap, oh crap, we're going to have a Travis Oates situation. And I tried to course correct... And I thought it'd be good enough because I thought, if you're watching this video, you trust me. You trust me to tell you the truth. And I told you the truth. And I figured that would be good enough. Because the problem is, Tom at no point ever stopped and said, Hey everybody, please understand, me, Z, and Travis, we're just joking around. There's no hard feelings here. You don't have to have hard feelings on our behalf. <clears throat> and if you don't enjoy this kind of humor, maybe you should just stop watching. This I don't get. I subscribe to dozens and dozens of channels on YouTube. Occasionally, I find after I subscribe, oh, I don't think I like this after all. You know what I do? I just unsubscribe. What I don't do is try to make the maker of that show miserable by saying, well, you're doing everything wrong. I know this is not what you're doing. And I know that's not what everybody's... Well, actually, that's not true. Some people are being real dicks about this. And, and some things have been deleted. You haven't seen the stuff I've deleted on that top 10. But to me, from my perspective, this is just a wave of negativity coming at me. And I just have to keep reminding myself, 94%, 94%. This is a very, very, very loud minority opinion. But it drives me nuts because we all three of us worked so hard to make that fun. And, oh man, it just drives me nuts. And I've spent way too much time talking about this. And I'm not mad at you, Anthony. And I'm not mad at anybody else. I'm mad at myself for not realizing until halfway through what I had done. And if I had couched the whole video in a different way, and if I could do it all over again, I would. I kind of have with the with the podcast that maybe some people have already heard now. But anyway, sorry. <sighs> Look at that. The title of your email was the Ryan thing. I should have known. I should have known. Always read the title. All righty. Moving right along. Phew. So perhaps this won't be quite so hardcore. Uh, Anthony, I love you, man. Uh, you were very polite and kind. I appreciate that you, it didn't work for you. 
Um, sorry. Oh man, I am so worked up. I'm cracking all of my knuckles now. That can't be fun for people. Anyway, let's see here. Michael wonders, have I ever thought about calculating the quote Rado reach? Now the conventions are gone, or at least for a while. Uh, publishers are going to have to start creating buzz year-round. Best way to do that, in Michael's view, is uh, going to the biggest review channels, which are Dice Tower, Rotto Runs Through, Watch It Played, etc. Due to longevity, full-time nature, merging cross-reviewer uh, network partnerships. So, how do show how do I show a publisher that I am more critical than ever in the current conventionless situation? Um... By making a video that everybody hates, which is what I did. Except they don't. 94% loved it. All right. Uh, which, of course, kills my... Sorry. I, I gotta let it go. Anthony, I love you, man. It's okay. It's okay. See, I need to have said all that up front. Saying it after the fact, it's too late. I know I have actually ranted at people, and then they've written back, you know, and, and didn't keep listening to where I apologize later. Oh, it's hard. Anyway. Woe is me. World's smallest violin. All right. So... Um, so how do you show publishers are more critical in the current, uh, situation, which of course kills the idea, uh, Michael at one point had suggested the Roddle, Roddle, the Roddle rummage where I go back and look at older games. Um, so that publishers can see the breadth of my reviewing capability in a way that doesn't require Jen to be involved in any way, uh, that she may not like. Oh, because I, I say no to a lot of games specifically because of Jen. Sure, fair enough. Subscribers, backers, etc. is one way of showing reach and other is relevance. How likely is it that someone is to buy a game reviewed or highly rated by Rado? Um, well, I know it's very likely. I know it happens all the time. Um, right, but anyway. I, are they watching because they find you entertaining or because they find you informative? Hopefully both. Um, except not in this podcast. Apologies for my rantiness. Anyway, uh, but the latter is what influences interesting after game. The standard way, of course, is to ask people to fill out a survey, even if it's just for internal interest. Michael goes one step further, just for fun. You looked up my top 125 ga- rated games, which, of course, I've reviewed. Okay, so you went to my personal how I rated, and you looked at those, like Agricola and... Uh, I can't think of words. But anyway, yes. All right. Stats were shocking. 25% of my... Uh, wait, no. Tw- no, I'm sorry. 20% of my top 125 games, based on my own personal f- uh, favorite, uh, Michael does not own and has no interest. So tw- 20% of those games, Michael's not interested. 10% of my favorite games of all time are on Michael's want list, and he's like he's very likely to acquire them. Um, 6% are games that he previously owned. He, he was interested enough to go out and get them and then ultimately it didn't work. So that's pretty good. Only 6% that I steered you wrong. Apologies for that. 64% he owns and the majority will probably stay in the collection for some time. In other words, if Rado reviews and highly ranks a game, it would appear there's a 70% chance that I will acquire it and an 80% chance that I, Michael, will want it. Interesting or scary? Thoughts? (laughs) Uh, well, thank you for the, uh, that's very interesting. Um, I would suggest looking for other, uh, you know, uh, uh, cooperate, you know, co- cooperating, uh, sources before you go out and buy. Um, although more importantly, just use the run through and see if it looks like fun. Don't take, don't pay no, never mind to my subjective opinion. You've all heard it. I don't need to repeat that. And yet I did. I repeat myself. So, hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's funny when I first started doing Rado runs through, Obviously, I was just playing, I was just filming whatever games I had. And after about a year of that, I'm like, okay, I, I was about to go to E3 or to Essen. And I figured, okay, I'm going to try, I'm going to see, I'm going to see if I can leverage this. I'm going to send emails to all the publishers 
and say, hey, I'm going to be at Essen. I'd like to pick up a review copy of your game so I could cover it for my show, Rado Runs Through. And what I did is I had a form letter where I had um, collated all of the comments on all of my first, what, 15 or 20 videos from actual publishers where they had said, oh, thanks, that's really great. We really loved it. That's a, you did a fantastic job. You really captured the feel of the game. You know, quotes like that from people like Steve Bonacore and, and, and stuff like that. And I took all of those quotes, I put them into this email, and it was very impressive, I think. And, you know, at the time, I wasn't very well known. I didn't really have that much of an audience. I, I probably had, I don't know, probably less than... 2,000 subscribers, but I had that wall of praise from publishers. And I sent that, and I got a really good response. And, you know, because this was back when uh, publishers were much more guarded about their games, and they didn't hand out review copies to any Tom, Dick, or Harry who walked along, uh, just on the off chance that it... I mean, because, hey, it's nothing. There is no reason for a publisher not to give out a review copy of a game. That costs them a couple of bucks, and worst case scenario, if that video translates into one sale, they have hugely increase their return, and there's just no reason not to do it. But back then, publishers didn't quite realize it. They thought we were all grifters, and so I had to work hard, but that worked really well. Um, of course, now I don't have to. I don't... I don't know. I don't know if I need to. Um, well, first of all, I mean, you, you preface the whole topic on what do I need to do to prove to uh, publishers that they should enter into uh, partnership, cross-promotional partnerships with me. I, 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 I get a fair bit of that anyway. So I don't know. If, I mean, I've probably already arrived. If I wanted to, I have, me- I have ample opportunity to do that already. If I wanted to push that more as a thought, as a thought exercise, because that's what it is, a thought exercise, I'm very happy with where things are right now. I don't necessarily have the drive, although that's not entirely true. Um, you know, I've made a big deal about how I brought on Andrew... Nope, ah, I just gave it away. How I brought on um, Shay and Ryan. Talked about that quite a bit in a previous question. I have brought on somebody else. Andrew. Um, and he is now my channel manager. Not that that has any front-facing meaning. Not that he has a business card or anything like that. But these days, when a publisher contacts me, I just forward the email on to, to Andrew. And he looks at it and he talks to them about, you know, when is the game going to be on Kickstarter? Or, hey, could you could you give us a copy of the rules? Because Rado always has to check those and stuff like that. Because it was going to be not a full-time job, but it was taking hours most days. Not every day. Sometimes there'd be go a few days without it. But often, it was taking a lot of time just to manage all that. And at the same time, Andrew, a friend of mine, has been after me for years to try to get more ambitious about the scope of my channel, and I've always resisted it uh, because... uh, Probably because of self-esteem issues, because I don't really think I'm that big a deal or that I'm worth all the attention that I get, and I feel uncomfortable and embarrassed whenever people tell me I'm doing a good job. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm mortified by the idea of asking for funding from backers, um, but they do. And I, I just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's just weird and kind of squishy feeling. So anyway, Andrew has none of that hang up. And so he can push. So he's pushing all kinds of initiative. The reason Shay and Ryan are on the channel is because Andrew said, you should get contributors. And I said, yeah, I, I don't want to have to try and, you know, vet people. I'll do it. Okay, and then he did it. And he went out and found Shay and Ryan. Actually, I mean, I already knew... I, I Actually, I didn't know Shay at all. I did know Ryan, and he suggested Ryan. And like, yeah, okay, 
fine. Uh, but you have to handle all of this because I am never going to talk about money to them because I'm really not comfortable with the idea. I mean, because they're getting paid to produce content for my show and um, I just want nothing to do with that. So anyway, I have a professional, long story short, I have a channel manager now and he is pursuing agendas like this. Um, you know, how we're always so big on uh, literates, Rado runs through, Rado roundup, Rado rundown, etc., etc. How about Rado recommends? Um, that might be something that happens in the future. Um, we'll see. But uh, the, the important thing is, uh, I'm just just trying to play games with my wife and then um, make videos of them and not have to go back to work in the video game industry. If, that, if I can achieve that, great. The number one thing that ultimately convinced me uh, that Ryan's initiative was maybe worth pursuing is because he pointed out, well, you know, it's not just you. It's it's other people. If you if Shay comes on your channel, that's going to help his channel. That's going to you know um, get him closer to his dream of you know whatever. And the same for Ryan. Ryan has a wife and two kids, and um, you know he could use more exposure and stuff like that. And like okay, I guess if it's helping other people, I'll go along with it. And uh, so I, I really had to be kind of dragged, kicking and screaming into it. Um, but I'm so happy I did because I do think it's great. And I love that games are being covered that wouldn't be on my channel normally. And I, I really like Shay and Ryan a lot. And I had such a great time doing that top 10, even though I will probably never do it again now because I'm so scarred by it. But yeah, that's the, that's the sitch as it is right now. So I'm sorry, Michael, I'm not sure if that really, I mean, Chris, you didn't have a question. You were just making observations. But I can say, anecdotally, I've heard similar numbers to that throughout the years. I am very influential. It always kind of drove me nuts every time Tom Vassell, whenever he was asked any kind of, well, what, what do you think about your power and your reach? And he was always quick to say, oh, I don't really have any power. I'm not an influencer. Yeah, you are, Tom, and so am I. Um, I'm not saying we make or break games. Well, actually, I think Tom could break a game. And I think Tom has broken some games. Um, and uh, I'm very cognizant of that. And I think, I think over time he has become more cognizant of it as well. I think he used to dismiss it because he just didn't want to believe he had that kind of power, but he does. And, um, yeah, so we'll see how things evolve. Sorry, that's a very meandering uh, series of observations from your very pointed series of observations with a singular lack of question mark other than thoughts. So those are some thoughts and observations. Phew, Ben, Benny Ben. All right, just watched the new must-have video and really enjoyed them. Oh, yay! Thank you, Ben. Ben really enjoyed the uh, Shay and Ryan uh, banter and whatnot. Anyway, so you're curious if the reason for selecting Fuse over... Oh, Fuse over Escape, Curse of the Temple, from a must-have real-time co-op game um, was because Escape needs expansions for longevity, but if having the expansions is what Escape... Yes, uh, I'm not going to... Yes, that's what it was. Um, my first thought was, my instant thought was, okay, I really want a real-time game. Of course, Escape. Oh, wait. Escape, Curse of the Temple with no expansions. Not even the little queenies. I don't think so. I think I will get sick of that in a way that I think Fuse, since it is more pared back and simple, I, I think Fuse has more longevity. It, it is more of an eternal. It is more of a what we used to call an evergreen game. Um, so I, I, that's basically what it came down to. Fuse versus Curse of the Temple. If, if you were to put them set of both up right now, I'd rather play uh, Escape Curse of the Temple. Which game would I rather play a hundred times? Fuse. Alrighty. Also, did I back Escape Roll and Write? Any initial thoughts on it? Um, I don't think it's closed yet, and I'm, I'm thinking about it. But as I've mentioned before, and even in this own podcast, if I buy a game, I'll never play it. 
So I'm really torn because I do want it. I want it, my precious, so badly. Um, it looks great. Uh, you know, not that they've said very much about it and they didn't contact me. I would have loved to cover it, but I don't know. Sometimes they contact me about stuff. Most of the time they don't. And I mean, but, it, but hey, you know, it, it costs money for me to do a run through and, and Queen doesn't need me to do it. They're going to succeed whether I do it or not. So it's not, I, I can't blame them for not doing it, for not contacting me. So yeah, I really want that game. And the reality is, I know I don't have to buy it because if I ask, they'll send me a review copy, but I hate to ask. So this might be a game I just never play because I've gotten to the point where I have too many games already without asking for any. Like I said, I, what did I say earlier? I've got 48 games on my shelf. I've got to cover. Do I need another 10 games every month? No. Do I want them? Yes. Um, I, I'm a cult of the new guy, and I'm super stoked about it. it. I'm really excited. So that's my conundrum. And I'm really just not sure, but I would love to play it sometime. All righty. Lastly, unrelated, do I feel the improvements made to Merlin with the Arthur expansion, or do I feel the improvements made to Merlin with the Arthur expansion more than offset the longer playtime? Yes. <clears throat> oh my gosh, that, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, Arthur. Arthur was the expansion that adds the second wheel, which literally makes the game longer. Yes, oh, you're right, and you're right, I did complain about that. That Why? Why did you, didn't have to do it this way? There are so many simple ways, and that is definitely, if I ever meet Steffenfeld in person... I am going to, one, want to hear the inside story about uh, Carpe Diem, but two, ask him, come on, really, will this work as a house rule to get Merlin length under control? Because it does get too long. I do, but man, we do enjoy it. I would say so. I'd rather Merlin not get an extra half an hour of length, but the extra depth that it added was so good. Uh, to answer your question, is I would say yes. I would say it justifies the longer playing time. And it drives me nuts because I don't think it needed to necessitate that. Okay. <laughs> All righty. Natalie. The podcast is the, my podcast is the only one Natalie listens to. Earlier this year, when I announced that... Um, oh, I was going to stop talking about new games in the podcast. Natalie's thought was, oh, well... I guess I'll find out about games in September before Essen Spiel. But now that has been canceled. Uh, Natalie's referring to the fact that when I, I announced when I was going to stop doing um, new games every episode, because I, I was going to stop spending hour upon hour upon hour every week searching for new games, it was fine. I would just do it um, in the month before Gen Con and the month before Essen. Surprise, those have been canceled. So Natalie's question, what now? What do you do, Hotshot? She didn't say that, but that's what she means. Because she's a speed fan, aren't we all? Um, all right. Can you tell me how... You, all right. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, as I understand it, Natalie, good news, everyone. Um, I'm not quite sure how. I don't think he's sure how either. Eric Martin has gone on record stating he is going to continue to do his traditional big mid-year Essen coverage on BoardGameGeek. The big super list of games. Even though the expan the, the uh, conventions don't exist, he is still going to give us those lists. And if he's still going to make them, I'm still going to do a podcast devoted to them. So we will still have, in theory, the Gen Con and or blowout episode once Eric gets all his ducks in a row. As long as he keeps doing it, I will keep doing it. Um, and I hope he will because that was my main solution. All right. And if he doesn't, we'll have to figure it out. I picked a bad year to stop keeping track of every new game that appears on BoardGameGeek, obviously. Question number two. Can you tell me how you subscribe to new games on BoardGameGeek? I have explained it earlier, but you didn't pay attention um, because 
you didn't need to know because I was a source of information. Any other tips? Right. It's, um, Natalie, it's, uh, it's an old, ancient technology of the internet called RSS. And now that I've said that, I realize I don't know what RSS stands for. What does it stand for? RS stands for, um, it stands for really simple syndication, apparently. Most websites will um, have an RSS feed that, um, if you have an RSS reader, will automatically, basically, collate all the new stuff that appears on that website and present it to you kind of like a forum or you're reading a newspaper or something like that, depending on what RSS reader you use. I use the RSS reader that is built into Microsoft Outlook. So, when I was still doing this, every day, probably anywhere from... 50 to 100 new games would appear in my inbox via the RSS feed from BoardGameGeek. And of course, that was too much. So I set up a, a dummy that would automatically shove them off into a, into a uh, directory. And actually, uh, 100 a day, that's a bit much. Probably more like 15 or 20 a day, I would say. <clears throat> Give or take. So, you know, eh, no more than that. Maybe like 30 a day. I, w- I want to say it's probably like about 100 new games a week. Probably. But it's been so long. I used to remember because I used to deal with this all the time. But anyway, so these would come in as emails. I set up a rule that would automatically put them in a subdirectory in Outlook. And then once a week or so, sometimes I didn't do it once a week. Sometimes I waited a couple of months and then I had like a thousand I had to look through. But I would just look through every single one of those entries, click on the link that would take me to the page on Board Game Geek, and then I would read about the game. And like I said, that took me hundreds of hours every year to do. And I had to stop doing it. The system is still there. And um, let's see. I'm going to see how hard it's fine. A Board Game Geek RSS feed. I'm just doing that as a Google search. And that takes me to a wiki page on Board Game Geek called RSS. And it looks like... Is there a link here? All right. right, That's what RSS is. Uh, User, contributions, subscriptions. All right. No, that's not what we're looking for. I'm going to go back to my Google search. And... Board game, RSS new feeds. This is a question somebody's asked. All righty. Oh, no, so apparently, I didn't realize this. These feeds can be based off of, uh, oh, whatchamacallum, um, uh, people's geek lists and stuff like that. Wow. That's more powerful than I thought. But okay, no, I'm going to done searching. I'm on Board Game Geek now. I am going to go to, because I know I've seen this somewhere before, that you can get to the new games. Is it under... Browse? Family? All board games? No, that's not going to be it. There's a way you can get... There's somewhere that you can get a list of new games. And this is not very exciting for people to listen to me click. Community. Maybe under community. Contribute. Submitted content. Guilds? No. Oh, I know this is here somewhere. Help. Uh, Oh my gosh. Where is it? All board games. All right. Let's look at all board games. Let's see if that's it. Random game, accessories, designers, families. Uh, da, 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 da. Nope. All right. I used to know where it is. It has now disappeared. The um, the page you could go to... Oh, wait, no. Under com- Okay. Oh, we're getting there, Natalie. Under community, which is up at the top of any page of Board Game Geek, there's a choice. RSS feeds. Click that. And we'll see what we get. Yes, click that, and you will be given an RSS feed that lists... Well, that lists everything. Every geek list item, every reply, everything. You don't want that. 
You uh, on this page though, there is a thing. It says click for custom RSS feed. And it takes you to an RSS feed. That's not what you want. Um, oh, no. Uh, instead, filter by type. And it's like everything that appears here. And I say the only thing I want to see, not new events, not new families, new games, apply. And suddenly, I'm looking at a page that lists today, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. 32 games have been added to the Board Game Geek database today. Conspiracy Theory, Sling Puck, Boss Monster Vault of Villains, Clean Family, Meta, uh, Wamiya, Wipeout Surf, Board Game, Bomber Boys, Alpina, 535. Here's the list. You've got it. Now, when you're looking at that list, you could come back here, but this list is only two pages long and things disappear quick. So then you click the custom RSS feed. It'll give you the URL, which is boardgamegeek.com slash recent edition slash RSS question mark subdomain equals blah, 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 blah. You take that URL, you put it into whatever RSS reader you want to use, including Outlook. If or what chances are, if you are not using, if you're using a program to track your um, email on your computer, it might have RSS feeds built in, and you can paste this in, and you will just get a daily feed of probably around 30 games and expansions. And good luck, Natalie. There you go. Hopefully, that went a bit deeper than you thought, didn't it? Let's move on to Dave. I was watching a feedback video I sent to Shay at one point. Oh, yeah. Um, for folks who don't know, if you back the show for $2 a month, you, every month you get a uh, a ramble video where I talk about different behind-the-scenes subjects and give guided tours of how I make videos and my studio and, and top tens and all kinds of stuff that will only ever be seen by the ramblers, those folks who give $2 to the show every month. All right. So, and you were watching it, and one of the recent, the most recent one I did was I let the Ramblers see um, in exacting detail the 90 minutes of feedback I gave to Shay after his first test run through. And, um, and it basically reveals everything about how I go, all the internal processes I go through when I'm filming, all laid out. Andrew, the guy I talked about earlier, he saw it and said, Oh my gosh, this is a masterclass in run throughs. You could charge money for this. And I guess I do. It costs $2 to see it. Um, but anyway, all right. So you, you watch that. And at one point, I talk about hoping certain things happen during a run-through so I can talk about them. And it made David wonder, do I ever stack the deck or cheat a die roll? Uh, for example, so you know there are three turns in a game. One of them is more, more interesting cards will get drawn um, or that a certain result gets rolled. All right. You've always enjoyed the videos, uh, but you have to say the recent content has been especially good. Thank you very much, David. Uh, the top 10 I did with Shane Ryan was a lot of fun. And uh, the series I've been doing with Tom Bassel is actually keep up the good work. Um, very rarely. Extremely rarely. Probably probably less than 10 times in the whatever I've done. I've done like 2,000 run-throughs, haven't I? How many run-throughs have I done? I know how to look that up. I can go to Board Game Geek. And I can look at my Rotto Runs Through Geek list, which is a list of every run-through I've done. And I am... Oh, it's not as many as I thought. It's 1,435 games that I have run through. Okay. And out of those, I would say I've stacked the deck probably less than 10 times. Probably more than that. But I feel like less than 10 times. I really don't want to do it. I really don't. Because... <clears throat> well, one, 
I am making things harder for myself. There's no doubt in a way, no choice about it. But I think it makes the show better if I genuinely don't know what's coming. And it forces me to think on my feet. It forces me to stay involved. It forces me to not fall prey to just kind of getting in a groove, you know? And um, and I've always felt that if I did start, uh, like, um, like oh, oh gosh, you know, you know, Tom Vassell does a daily unbox, or the most boring unboxing video in the world video where he just shows himself opening boxes. And uh, it's so obvious when he already knows what's in the box, but he pretends to be excited. Uh, you know, it's almost charming to me. Um, and I don't want that to happen. I want things to be genuine and real and in the moment. And that means I can't cheat. Occasionally I will because it's absolutely essential that I, I you know, because it's a particularly complex situation I have to describe. Sometimes, <clears throat> very rarely, but sometimes I'll just re-roll the die until I get what I need. Because I really want to show how combat works. And the bad guy doesn't attack if you don't roll at least a six or whatever. So sometimes that happens, but it's pretty rare. For the reason I just said. Okay. Oh my gosh, that's it? Oh, 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 oh we're at an hour and 46 minutes. Okay. And we are done for the day. I hear Jen just got back. I can't wait to hear how her eye test went. And um, I think it's almost 7 o'clock at night. So we will pick this up tomorrow with the personal questions and answers. But for you, it'll be right after this. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Jen is here at hello, long last. Hello. And Jen is ready to answer some questions. Yes. And we have swapped seats, so I am now very far away from the microphone so that Jen could be closer. And this is an experiment. I don't know how well this is going to work out. Uh, I'm looking at the waveform, and suddenly my voice seems very, very tiny. <laughs> Honey, how is your voice? My voice seems um, smaller than yours. Still. Even still, <laughs> even though she is. 18 inches away from the microphone, and I am almost three feet away from the microphone. I am still louder than her. You're just a loud man. I am a loud man, you but have I guess mighty lungs. Yep, I guess Levelator will take care of it. Uh, it'll be interesting to hear what this sounds like. But all of that out of the way, let's start with some questions. And of course, there's actually supposed to be three sections: the me doing games, then Jen doing a games-related section with questions that she would be interested in uh, hitting, and then we get to the personal stuff. There were only two game-related ones that I thought Jen would want to uh, have anything to say about, so we're just going to wrap those together. So, honey, first we got a couple of gamey questions. Are yes. you ready? Yes. All right. Well then, um, where are we? <laughs> I can't click. I have suddenly failed at clicking. <laughs> Why am I not clicking? Oh, what is dear. happening here? There we go. Right, clicking not... didn't work. Keyboard did. <laughs> All right. Uh, Gerald says, or I'm sorry, not Gerald. I'm sorry, Gerald. Every time he always says, like Gerard Butler. I There's no L in there. What is wrong with me? Uh, Gerard says that he loves how I mentioned StarCraft, the board game at some point. I don't know when. Uh, I don't know how much of it. All right. Oh, that was Gerard's first game. Bought it. He's a huge fan of the PC game. He's, of course, got a big collection now. And his girlfriend thinks uh, he has an addiction <laughs> because he finds himself playing a lot of tablet games since he's on the road for work. He's been playing lots of Pandemic on his tablet, which is great, but is curious about Honey Pie. Our top three games for a tablet. Oh. 
the, and the reason I figured Jen might have something to say about this is because, honestly, I don't think Jen's going to have anything more to say than me. Neither of us play games on a tablet. So, honey, why do you not play games on a tablet? Because I got other things to do with my time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like sitting across the... You hear that, Gerard? Jen says you're wasting your time playing those games on the road. When no, you could no, be no. doing more fulfilling and meaningful things with I your tablet. I was not saying that at all. I think if you're <laughs> on the road, the tablet is a great option. Mm-hmm. But we are sitting right next to each other 95% of our time. Uh, of our days, and the, I don't see why we do it on tablets as opposed to on the cardboard and the table. Well, you spend a fair amount of time on a tablet every night reading. Yeah. Why don't you play a game or two? Uh, because we play plenty of games. I don't feel the need to play them on my tablet at night. All right. Well, there you go. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, Gerard, not Gerald. I, I'm trying to think. We did play... A, a fair amount of San Juan on the iPhone, I think. At the time, we both had iPhones. And that was when I first moved to Malta. And Jen was still back in England. And that was yeah. a couple of months. And I think we played a couple games, maybe on Board Game Arena. Uh, and, uh, and, we, and we played a fair bit. And I, and I think for a while, we had it on our phones as a thing we could play if we were waiting somewhere. But... We just stopped eventually. We never picked it up again. So I guess that's our number one. And uh, yeah, I don't think there's much more to say about that. I thought maybe Jen would surprise me. And she's been playing Words with Friends or something like that with her sister. (laughs) But no. Nope. Nope. Okay, then the other quasi-gamey related one before we get to the personal stuff. It's Rebecca from New Zealand. Oh, how lovely. Who has a question. Uh, she loves adventure games like Near and Far, but struggles with making decisions with a moral component. One of the ones uh, she came across was when they found a robot, and the choice on the card was to help the robot or sell it in Near and Far. Uh, Even if I was to lose the game, I wouldn't be able to sell that robot, says Rebecca. How do Jen and I cope with making tough moral decisions like that that maybe go against our morals? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Yes, I thought you might have something to say about it. Yeah. Well, I think when we come upon that sort of thing, we do talk about it. It's like, oh, obviously the game wants us to do this, but I don't really want to do that. But I really should because that's clearly what the game wants me to do. Well, not that the game wants you to do. The game wants you to make a choice and you just have to make a choice. Okay, so the game is set up that it's obvious which is the more advantageous decision. Is it? Usually. Is it? Yeah. Mm, Well, maybe you're digging deeper than me. I would say that's uh, an interesting observation. Because I don't find that to be the case at all. Most of the time, I I don't remember that specific one in Near and Far, but I can certainly imagine, oh, it's a robot. Are you going to sell it for parts and make some money, or are you going to let it go? That's all it tells you. You're saying from that that the game has a clear agenda of what you should do? Well, I don't know that that is exactly what it was. It seemed mm-hmm. to me, if you, because Near and Far has the, um, your your goals and your life, you know, process and all that that you're trying to get to. So I think the game does, yes, it sets you up with a set of sort of parameters of how to optimally play this character. And if you're playing this character versus that character, then this would be a better decision than that. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember that specific example either. We may never have run across it. Who knows? I, yeah. But... Um, usually what we will do is we will discuss it <laughs> and, and anguish a little bit over it and then usually make the right decision. Meaning the, the kind moral decision. Right. Consequences be damned. Yep. Consequences be damned. Yeah. Well, uh, the interesting thing is 
Uh, of course, I made video games for many years, and one of the games I worked on was Fable 2, which was famous for constantly giving players morality-based decisions. I mean, that's kind of more common these days, but it was sort of a new thing back then. The catchphrase, or the sales uh, tagline for the original Fable was, for every choice, a consequence. And when I got there at Lionhead and started working on Fable 2, they told me, because we were, of course, we were going to make another game with lots of moral choices. Are you going to choose the good path or the bad path and what impact it'll have on you and the world and stuff? And they mentioned to me that their research from the original game proved to them that the overwhelming majority of players will always choose the good option. Um, you know, it's a very small outlier group of players that, oh, I want to be evil. Or who will make a decision not based on the morality, but instead based on, you know, the gameplay consequences at most. That's the main reason you'd see somebody making. I mean, that over, you know, maybe somebody says, oh, I'm going to play the game evil. I'm going to try to be evil. But, you know, it's kind of, that's a, a fluke. Most people will always choose good. And they found that, and they were kind of frustrated by it in the original Fable. Because they put so much work into the game responding <laughs> to you being evil, and then no one is ever evil. Uh, no one ever chooses. And so, the decision was made on Fable 2, and I thought it was brilliant, that um, wherever you have, or not every time, but most of the time, when a moral choice was put to you, the evil choice would lead to riches aplenty. And, um, you know, you just being a scumbag, but getting all the good stuff. And as often as not, the upstanding moral choice would get you bubkus. Would get you nothing other than, you know, just a sense of satisfaction for, oh, I did the right thing, even though I'm now poor and penniless, when I could have been rich and gotten the ultimate sword of awesomeness if I had just decided to burn down the orphanage. <laughs> I, because don't you want the sword of awesomeness? And that was a really cool decision that I really, I really liked it a lot. That, you know what, um, have the courage of your convictions. Don't, I mean, because... And to this day, most games say, oh, no, no, you have to make it equal. It has to be an even, Steven choice. And I think that's wrong. I think um, you should, you know, it, it's, a, it's less interesting. It's not an interesting choice if, oh, well, of these two things, of course I'm going to do the good thing. Yeah, but look what you get the bad thing. Yeah, so, especially if there's no penalty for doing the good thing. Yeah. And so I was surprised Jen was saying that because I thought she was about to say that, oh, yeah, games encourage us to be evil. But I don't think that's the case. I, I think for the most part, I'm going to disagree with Jen and say that generally, I mean, again, maybe Jen's playing a game from a more strategic level than I do. No surprise there. <laughs> but um, I, I think for the most part, they're always presented as, well, hey, you could do this or this. We're not going to judge you. You just do whatever you think is what you want to do. And I think it's better as a design decision to make that a tough choice. And I'm sorry, that means, Rebecca, I'd want to make it a tough choice for you too. I would want to tempt you to the dark side just so that you could test um, you know, it's an opportunity to have a morality test. Will you, um, you know, issue the sword of awesomeness to, uh, you know... Save the orphanage. Yeah, or whatever it might be. Um, and in fact, uh, I was recently asked to do <laughs> some design uh, consulting, or not consulting, uh, to, to work on a design for a mission or two for the new Frosthaven, Gloomhaven sequel. And you better believe that's something I'm going to try to put in there. Um, you know, saying, well, look, you can just take the quick, easy route but it's going to be evil, or you can um, you know, stick to the courage of conviction. That's kind of where I come down on that stuff. And um, I think, ultimately, is a more satisfying and cathartic end result to say, 
Well, I mean, I, I, I know Jen has been frustrated. Ah! We get nothing for doing the right thing? Yeah, you get nothing for doing the right thing. <laughs> but it was the right thing. Yep. And um, personally, I think it's, it's more meaningful if, um, yeah, there is no implicit reward other than just being good. So that's kind of where I come down on it. And yeah, I would still choose to do good. Unless I were role-playing an evil character, but that's not something we generally tend to do. Yeah. Um, but I do think it is fertile ground for interesting moments in gameplay. And I'm, I'm really keen on it. So we'll see what happens with Frosthaven. I should warn you, though, Rebecca, you might have even tougher choices than normal. We'll see how it goes, though. I don't really know what Isaac has in mind. But anyway, those were the two game-related questions, and now we will continue with the personal stuff Starting with Kate, who says to Jen, do you ever burn yourself making glass sculptures? I certainly do. Yes, I do. Uh, quite often, I am impatient and I stick the glass rod straight in the flame and a little bit of it will ping off and it will um, hit me. Which is to say you have a minor explosion. Let's not just say, oh, a little bit pings off. No, your glass piece explodes <laughs> no, not the glass in your piece. hand. Not the glass piece. The rod. The, the rod The glass. rod that you're going to melt down into your piece. Yes. Not my actual piece that I've been working on. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah, so, so sometimes little bits of it ping off <laughs> yeah, and, and hit me. Well, or, so you, you wear like a very thick I have a leather. I have a leather apron. Yeah, to protect yourself, and it's covered with scorch marks. Yep. Um, but so are you. Yep, a few. It's just part of it. I uh, mean, when I was doing fused glass, I was always cut. So one way or another, <laughs> I suffer for my art, but it's worth it. It's worth it! All right, well, there you go. Yep, the main thing is not to burn the, the studio down. Yes. Have you ever been hit in the face with one of those... Ping off, fling up. Have you been burned in the face, or is it always just your arms? Because uh, your arms are closer, I assume. Yeah, it's closer. I've got some on my chest. I think I've had, you know, like one or two on my cheeks or something like that. No. I always wear my glasses because I do. I can't bear to the thought of my eyes getting burned. I need my eyes. Need them. Yeah, so you'd be wearing safety glasses anyway. Of course, I, you wear special whatever it is, the didinium. Didinium. Whatever, yeah. so you can see through the flame and see what you're doing, but... Yeah. Even if you didn't need that, you would wear safety glasses. I would 100% of the time wear safety glasses. All I even right. wear glasses when I'm just doing stuff around the studio that I might be poking my eye out with. Because i got lots of pokey things in my studio. <laughs> yep. It's a dangerous business, mm. glass making. Yep. Okay. Um, a Paul Way says he's been watching. Grotto <clears throat> runs through for years. Has a question. Wait. Is that a game question? No, I think... Did it sneak in? This sounds familiar. The question, did, was this in last month's? I mean, maybe I forgot to delete it. Um, how did I become such a wonderful human being? Well, you are a wonderful human being. Do you recall that being in last month's? Um, I think so. I can't remember. All right. To the podcast.rado.com and looking. Because, folks, in case you didn't know, you can at a glance know what all the questions are going to be because I spend forever typing them all up. <laughs> Let's see, last episode, 60, in the personal, there's Bengal Spice, Introducing mm. Dogs, uh, does Jen play any of my video games, How to Spell Jen's Name, Pub Food, Breakfast, ADD, Saber, Egg, Preparedness, Favorite Song. No, it's not here. I, all I'm right. sure we've answered I guess that I just saw it when it came in, because all these uh, come into my inbox, and I just take a quick look at them, and I put them in the correct directory for later, and then I forget about them, and I guess that just stuck out at me. Aww. So, Honey Pie, yes. um, I think I probably should uh, answer not that. answer this question. Oh. So, in your opinion, how, why, how did your husband become such a wonderful human being? 
Well, you started out with really considerate people who were your parents, mm -hmm. and they are just um, really, really amazing, kind, giving people. And your brother, who hasn't you know really done much with his life, even he is a very kind and giving person. So I think it started out young with the modeling that they did. Mm -hmm. uh, you also spent a lot of time when you were a kid reading really good books that talked to you about moral issues and that helped you decide the kind of person that you want to be and then you've had a lot of professional challenges over the last 30 years where you've been dealing with people and you've made decisions that are good for them as opposed to even sometimes good for us and i certainly admired that and of course there's been a cost to that but on the other hand you're just a good person and it <laughs> you sleep well at night. I know you do, except when I snore. I snore quite a lot, unfortunately. But um, I would say those things add up and you've just really made conscious decisions to be a kind, caring person and also to believe the best about people. I think that is a really big decision you made early on that people are good and so you give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, that is challenging sometimes. Um, but it is something I often have to remind myself, uh, you know, whoever I'm dealing with, just because their actions seem villainous to me, from their perspective, it is justified and they're doing, they're doing the best they can. Yep. And, um, you know, and I, I don't always get that right. Sometimes I forget it, but I, it's something I always have to strive to work on. And, um, and you know, everybody... don't get wrong. there are some genuinely bad people in the world, but they are very few and far between. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely something I always, I always try to look at the world from the other person's perspective. And, um, and I know sometimes it's super annoying to Jen because <laughs> she just wants to complain about whatever it might be or whatever that person just did. And I'm like, well, honey, let's stop and take a few minutes. And if you imagine the world from their perspective, you can see, and she's like, yeah, okay, fine. I understand that, but still, whatever. let me just get my bitching and moaning out of the way. <laughs> Because yep. sometimes you just got to, you know, once you've talked about it, it ceases to be an issue, whatever it was. Sure. And uh, sometimes you just got to vent. All right. That was very embarrassing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thanks, Paul Way. Wait, should we get your mom in here and she can talk about how wonderful you were as a child? <laughs> that is an interesting question. Um, folks, by the way, don't forget, questions, the questions at Rio.com. I, I live with uh, four ladies in this house. Or no. How many uh, ladies? Have you got one stuck away somewhere? Well, um... Gertrude and Daisy. Well, then that would be... Then it has to go up to, uh, what? I live with 18 yes, ladies. Yes, because we've got no. chickens. We got a 16. Dozen. I live with 16 ladies in this house. <laughs> and so far, you folks only asked for... But if you, hey, if you have questions about me as a kid, we can probably drag mom in here yep. for a quick question or two. I can parse what the chickens would say. Yeah, that which would be... Balk. That sounds about right. <laughs> you are very good at seeing the world from a chicken perspective. Yeah, they've got pretty simple brains, so yep. they're not hard to interpret. All righty. All right. Moving on to Kevin. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> All righty. Uh, he put caller in quotes. Yep. He just listened to me retell the original pandemic purchase decision, uh, you know, the, uh, yep. the you know, Scrabble thing, noting that the salesperson at the game store recommended pandemic based on Jen's interest in active apocalypse stories. Hey, Which I think was the term I used. Do you know who sold you that? Who was it? Blue Highway Games? You don't remember the sales Oh, geez. No, guy. of course not. I mean, I didn't give it a... It was like over a decade ago now. Yeah, or yeah. it must be a decade ago. And he was just a guy working behind the counter. And he chatted with me for a little while. I wonder, actually, if we could put a call out. 
Just, you know, if anybody's oh. listening, if you were that guy, <laughs> let us know. We'd like to say thank you. Mm, yes. I mean, we have definitely said thank you to the owners of uh, Blue Highway Games. I if they would know. Huh? Anyway. They probably could. You're right. They could. I mean, they probably have records of their employees. And um, they would have to look up. When was it? It was, we were in Seattle. Because you were there too, if I recall correctly. For, uh, what was it? It must have been PAX. It must have been a PAX. And we were, so the first PAX that Brink was demoed at, whatever year that was, must have been 2009, I guess, uh, whatever employee was working, they <laughs> could look it up and, um, and say thanks. But anyway, with my success as a board game content provider and uh, my impact on buyers like Kevin, it occurs to Kevin that the salesperson uh, had a moment right then. That person made a decision with such a massive butterfly effect impact that game recommendations have directly impacted Kevin's life. Uh, he, he thinks I, he, he, he notes that we've been back to the store, but have we ever, actually, <laughs> have we ever tried to figure out who that salesperson was oh. and contact them in the years since? Is that person listening to your podcast now? If so, Kevin wants to thank them. I, I, yeah, I mean, that's totally coincidence that that prompted Jen to go in the same Yeah, I'm not uh, looking thought. at his screen or anything. Yeah, direction. Yeah, Jen's uh, trying to finish my scarf, which is now getting too warm. Yep. Missed, the, missed winter, but it'll be ready for next winter. Yeah, it'll be ready come yep. October. Um, yeah, well, actually, we just inadvertently answered your question. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that would generally be interesting. I mean, for all I know, he's still working there. Who knows? But, and I mean, I, 10 years is a long time. I wonder if he... Nine or 10 years. If he would realize, hey, I'm the guy. I'm on that guy, and... That he would say, look at what I, you know, I mean. I don't yeah. know. I mean, the, the the most recent time we went back to Blue Highway <laughs> and we you know, took that picture and said that was a postcard and yep. stuff. Um, the guy who was working, it was a Saturday. He had no idea who I was. Nope. Just, I was just some regular schlub off the street. Uh, you know, Jen and I were waiting for the recognition and it never came. And, and I was totally fine with that. Yeah, and yeah. to be fair, he was kind of spread pretty thin because they, ha I think there was like a kid's Yu-Gi-Oh tournament going on at that point. Or there was some other stuff happening. Um, but he was still took the time to leave the store and walk across the, the busy street so that he could take a picture of us with the blue highway sign, which is way up high on camera. I mean, so he, he really went above and beyond, even though, I mean, that's just a sign of how great blue highway game is. He, I, I was not a celebrity to him, but he still went that extra mile, yep. which was very, very cool. It was really funny too. He's like, okay, what's your name? Richard Ham. Okay, great. What's your address? Yep. What's your phone number? Yep. Oh yeah, because would you like was... to be part of our frequent buyer club yeah, yeah, or whatever? Yeah. And yep. we're like, sure. Yep. <laughs> just yep. completely did not know him. Yeah. And it was awesome. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know, you go to places and sometimes everybody knows you. And so it's just kind of nice to anyway. Yep. Yep, yep. Okay. So moving along, we then have uh Nicholas, who says his wife has always wanted to move abroad. Uh, but it's always been overwhelmed with the decisions that go into it. You just have to ask her nicely to move a little bit. To move abroad. Oh, dear. Oh, 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 oh my goodness. Ouch. What would we say is the biggest pitfall to avoid when wanting to move abroad? Uh, presumably, Nicholas, you're in America. Um, just going to assume. Uh, are things that you, are there things that we would do differently the next time we move abroad now that we have lived there? Ooh, well, we are going to move back abroad. Someday, and, yes. Yep. We will go back to England. And we have a house there which has some of our stuff up in the attic. So um, we already are going to be doing stuff differently. With being, We don't have to ship so much stuff over. So that's nice because the moving itself is kind of a hassle. 
as moving is anyway, no matter where you're going. Um, let's see. What would, what would, well, we definitely would not have moved our car. Yeah, I was going to say that's the biggest lesson. Yeah. I mean, we Jen had a really loved, allowance. what was it? It was a Suzuki. Grand Vitara. A Grand Vitara. And Jen loved that car and that's she didn't want to part with it. Still my favorite car. But yep. anyway, um, we moved it because we had a moving allowance and um, that it was. We had enough wiggle yeah. in there. I mean, that we, could we move would it. never would have paid to move the car. Yeah, I think we it was would two have... or three thousand or something yeah. like that to ship the car overseas. Yeah. And since I mean, you know, my lion head moving allowance covered it, we go, okay, why not? Why give it up? Um, yeah, I mean, well, it was the still answer, pretty new. because it's a royal pain <laughs> to um, have a car with the steering wheel on the wrong side of the road. But that's very rare. I mean, there's not a lot of English colonies and places that still are driving on. Yeah. So if you're going to Australia, Malta. Or England and uh, Japan. Yep. No, no, no. Japan is is American size. Is, is I'm pretty sure. Jimmy no, no, is. no. It's not because remember the um, Bongo had the steering wheel on the. You're right. Yes, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So Japan. So there's a, a handful of places where um, just the inconvenience of having your steering wheel on the wrong side of the car makes it not worth taking the car. Anything else? Any other terrible mistakes we made? Um, I think the. One thing I'm really pleased about is that we got our rabies stuff done ahead of time, so our dog didn't have to go into quarantine. Mm-hmm. So that was really good. Um, what would we do different? I think I think I would have, I, and I already did. I think I got rid of about a third of our stuff before we moved, but even still, it was too much stuff. Yeah, when we had moved from Oregon to Texas, um, we decided, hey, you know what? This is a this is a big step. Let's go big. Let's get a really cool house and let's uh, get all new furniture for the first time in our adult life because we'd always been just using hand-me-downs and yeah. and stuff like that up to that point. We're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna spend big on ourselves and um, you'll get you know beds and couches and armoires and all kinds of stuff. It's gonna be amazing. And so Jen spent a lot of time and we loved it and uh, we didn't want to part with any of it. Yeah, because uh, it was all really only three years old. That, yeah, we loved all that furniture and it was all brand spanking new. Um, and we foolishly decided to take a lot of it. And that was a poor choice because as it turns out, British, or obviously we're talking about Eng- moving to from America to England, England houses have tiny rooms and very narrow doorways. And American-sized furniture does not fit anywhere. Yep. And that was a real problem. We should have left it all behind, quite frankly. We should have. Yeah. Um, some of that stuff, it's, uh, you know, went right up into the attic of the house, and it's still there, and it's never been used because it just takes up too much space in any room, in the, you know, because the rooms are tiny. Of course, that's changing. You know, architectural styles are opening up, but, you know, if you're going to get a house in England that isn't brand spanking new, uh, you know, or made in the last 10 or 15 years, it's probably going to have a lot of little tiny separate rooms yep. and no big, you know, expansive communal living spaces because that's just the, the way of it over there. Um, so that was a problem. And, uh, and you know, especially because when we moved back to America and we we're going to turn our British house to a apartment complex, basically for students... We spent the better part of, I think, less than a week. And in less than a week, we had gotten three fully furnished studio apartments worth of furniture that we were able to put in the three bedrooms of our house yep. for free. Yep, on free cycle. On free cycle. So, that's so a, many people. A bed, a wardrobe, a desk, bookshelves. And chairs. And chairs. Yeah. Um, and all of it for free. And and a kitchen table and chairs. Yeah. 
Yes, yes, yes. And we felt so good about that. And somebody even threw a in a flat screen TV. Yes. I mean, it was just like, my gosh, so much stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it really kind of changed both of us. I mean, as soon as we go back to America, our first thought is, oh, if we need stuff, let's see if we can go down to the local uh, Goodwill. Yep. As opposed to just, you know, go and buy it directly. Because there's so much recycled stuff and you're just not contributing more waste to the world. So that, I think, is a, is a big deal. Do not, you know, basically travel light. Yeah, as light as you can. Yeah, or move light. And of course, I mean, you might be inclined to do that anyway because you just don't want to spend a arm and a leg in uh, moving. Well, I fees. think yeah, I think our our moving allowance was something like fifteen thousand dollars. I thought it was or... like, or no, it was. I think it was. It was either eight or ten thousand uh, pounds British. Okay. Well, which yeah. so it was probably that was probably like ten or twelve thousand dollars U.S. It was big because I was coming in as a fairly high level executive role at Lionhead. Yeah, and probably at that time the conversion rate. But yeah. Anyway, it was. We just had money to burn. Yep. Basically. And um, and all honesty, we shouldn't have done it. Yep. <laughs> it falls right down to it. Uh, but we had to, because it's not like they would have given it to us as cash. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't know. Yep. That's why you're asking. So yeah. you can Anything else? Anything else? Uh, well. Don't hire your mover at the last possible second. That's a lesson we learned moving back to America. Yeah. We were going to actually mail... Through the mail, yeah. every box that we wanted to have returned to America. Because I, I spent the time figuring it out, and it would have been cheaper to literally just box all our stuff up, not use international movers, and just mail it. And I think we boxed up four boxes worth of things and Games. had them sent to a friend. Yep. Um, and we were going to do the rest. But at some point... I got cold feet. Yeah, you got really nervous that, um, you know, what was insurance going to do? Oh, no, you were worried that we were going to get nailed by import because we were literally mm. short-circuiting the entire process because there is import duties um, when you that you have to... It's just part of the money you have to pay to movers. And um, so Jen decided, let's not do it. And so at the, literally at the last second, we got movers who... I mean, I guess they did a good enough job under the circumstances, but, I mean, it, it left was. kind of a pall on our final days in Malta, yep. knowing how our stuff was not handled very well. And no. what is it, Honey Pie? Oh, it just, it was just, there was, oh. if you, actually, if you guys want to know about that, ask us. We don't need to bring you down. Bring yeah. you down. No. Yes. Uh, that would yeah. be the full list of all the terrible things that went wrong on our move from America to Malta, <laughs> or from Malta back to America. Yeah. yeah. Um, so right. what else would we have done? Um, well, so we... We actually were waiting for a work permit, and you may not be waiting for a work permit if you go overseas. So that yeah. was a problem. Don't move until the work permit comes through. Well, yeah, because we left our house. I think it was on Halloween Day. Uh, and yeah, we left Texas behind, moved out. Yep, and I, I think. And we I flew. had no work permit. So I was not allowed to work in the country I was going to yet. Yeah. But we thought, oh, well, let's just make... We didn't want the dogs to have a long flight from Texas to England. We want Dobby. Yeah, or, yeah, Dobby. We wanted her to have the shortest flight possible. So we thought, oh, we'll drive from Texas to New York. That'll take a few weeks. And that should be enough time yeah, for we'll the work permit. New Orleans, and we'll see some stuff along yeah. the way. And and, uh, and then the permit will be done, and we'll fly over. We get to New York, and oh, there's still no permit. Yep. And uh, weeks later, I mean, I think we ended up, how long did we stay in that little motel? It was like, what, four, six weeks waiting? No, it wasn't that long. But remember, we were up in Corning for a couple of weeks. And yes. Then we came well, back I'm down talking to about Jersey. all that. How much time did we spend living in a motel because we were stuck and could not leave the country? We were effectively were homeless. Yeah. I mean, that was at least four weeks, wasn't it? I think beyond what we were hoping for. Yeah, probably three to four weeks 
Yeah, we, we had planned you were going to spend a few days in Corning, but we didn't plan to spend two weeks in Corning no. and then another three weeks in a motel three miles away from JFK Airport. Um, waiting in the every state. day. the Garden State. In the Garden State, waiting every day for the work permit so we could get on a plane. And actually, we finally had to just get on the plane because our stuff was arriving. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it took, uh, you know, it took us longer to get there than our stuff on the slow boat across. Yeah, so that was a mistake. Do not go unless your paperwork is done. Don't assume, hey, in a couple of weeks the paperwork will be done because it won't. At least that's our experience. Anything else? No, I think that's probably enough. Okie doke then. Um, we're moving right along, and, uh, right, right, uh, Gerard is back, and he thought it was funny when my Alex started talking to me in some <laughs> recent video or podcast. I'm saying Alex so that she doesn't wake up. My daughter's name is Alex, with an A at the end, and when she goes to her friend's house, they have to, uh, they, <laughs> Uh, they have to turn their Alex off. So, uh, uh, and I thought it was interesting watching you make those turtles with your machine there, Jen. Oh, because I did a video. Or you remember a video of you making the turtles? Yeah. All right. So no, he had no questions about Alex or Alexa, which I'm not going to say anything else that would make her say anything. Alexa, stay quiet. Don't say anything. She's flashing, but she didn't do anything. Okay. Anyway, honey So does pie. that mean you actually live with five ladies? Um, yes, I guess so. That's a good point. Uh, long story short, what made you go into glass making and when did you start? Oh, um, well, I've always loved glass. I think it's just been a foregone conclusion. When I was, uh, in high school, I guess a friend of mine, her, her mom did some stained glass stuff. And so I always had had it in my mind. That was something I wanted to do eventually. And, uh, we were living in... Did you ever do any stained glass in high school? No. Did you hang out with her mom as she did it? I think I was in the vicinity sometimes when she was doing it, but it wasn't like she sat me down and gave me a lesson okay. or right. anything like that. Um, but when we were living in Texas, I went to San Antonio, or maybe she came to Austin, I can't remember. Anyway, some street fair, and I met this wonderful lady who makes gorgeous glass. Her name's Gail Stouffer, and she's still in San Antonio doing glass. She has her own studio, right? She, oh, yeah. She's got a huge teaching studio now, so if you want to learn, she is a great place to go. Yeah. Um, anyway, she had all her gorgeous stuff out and I was going to buy a bunch of it. And she said, oh, you know, I do classes. If you want to invite a couple girlfriends over, I'll bring my little tabletop kiln. And... All right. Yeah. It wasn't the people had to go to San Antonio. She would come to you. Yeah. And so she brought kilns a to, kiln. Uh, a kiln a to Austin where we lived. Yep. Came to my house and I had a couple of neighbors over and we all cut some glass and we melted some glass and it was so much fun. Um, she didn't convert anybody else that day, but she sure got me. <laughs> So by the well, end of the night, the, apparently you're saying the bug had been lying dormant. I think all those so. Years. Yes, definitely. So by the end of the night, I was talking to her about where I should order my kiln from <laughs> and how to get glass and all sorts of stuff. So and was she like, "Hey, oh, slow down"? No, baby. she wasn't. No, she was like, she was not. She was like, you know what? I used to be a graphic designer too, and so this is how it's going to work really well because you can um, work in the morning in the garage making glass because it takes about 24 hours for the kiln to heat up and cool down. So if you're out there in the morning and you get your kiln going, then while it's heating up and cooling down, you can be inside working, doing your graphic design business, and see, you'll be like working double. <laughs> and I went, oh, and ding, 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 ding. Jen loves efficiency. I Long did. before she knew she was a Euro gamer. <laughs> I was an efficiency Jen was person. living the life of a Euro gamer, yes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so she had me 
every which way. And yeah, so I, I basically ordered this really big kiln and it came in, I think, what, six weeks or something like that. In the meanwhile, I took a couple of classes from various places, keep my, keep my toe in the water. And then once my stuff arrived, I just sort of went out there and started playing and figuring out what glass does and how to work it and what I liked about it and blah, 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 blah. And at what point did you switch from being a hobby to an actual career? I think that must have been when we moved to England because yeah. I sold my graphic design business and had a lot of time on my hands now. So I just, I would say that, yeah, I got involved with several crafters um, guilds and things like that in England, joined some co-op galleries and that sort of thing, did some wholesale shows. That was crazy. But mm -hmm. yeah, that didn't really work out very well for me because in England, they want to have, it's, it's basically on consignment. So you supply the goods and then they pay you 50% or thereabouts when something sells. So if you have 10 galleries that you're doing this with, you have to have 10 times the amount of inventory because you're supplying them all and they're not, you know, they don't have to pay anything until something sells. So it's really, really hard to do that as, a, as an artist because you're out all of those materials and you're out all of the time, of course, to make everything. And then you've got a follow-up and the bookkeeping and it's just awful. <laughs> so unfortunately, yeah, that doesn't, I mean, it, that's still how they're doing it. And I disagree with it. So I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Well, that precipitated, that was to stop doing that required you to basically completely change your entire business model and stop making bit large gallery size pieces of glass and instead switch to small little things that you could sell through Etsy yep. and ship all over the world. And mail. Yes. Easily. Without them breaking. So, yeah. And actually, that sort of coincided. My, my lack of patience with this business model um, did sort of coincide with us moving to Malta. So, I left all of my big stuff in my studio in England, which is in the garden. It's just, you know, which is now, sitting there. It's uh, very sad for anybody who rents our house. They uh, have a really wonderful little summer house down at the... Uh, in the down, garden. Down by the river way, and they can't use it. Yeah. But... Um, so someday I might get back to doing bigger pieces. In fact, I did buy a bigger kiln when I came back from England last year, which I haven't really done much with yet. I did some some small things for Christmas last year. But anyway, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's just a change in business model. And now I, for Malta, it was super easy to ship everything everywhere in the world because they had very cheap postage. Now, to ship anything back overseas from the United States, it costs a minimum of $14 to ship a little tiny anything. Anything could weigh it 10 ounces or an ounce or two ounces. I think it's up to six ounces, actually. This $14 and anything over six ounces is probably 20 or something. It's crazy. Crazy, I tell you. Crazy. So anyway, yep, that was probably more than they asked about. Yes. I think the question was, how did you get started? <laughs> uh, which I believe you did answer. I did. Somewhere in there. All right. Uh, then we move on to Nathan, who also just watched the turtle video. Mm. And um, for folks who don't know what that is, basically, well, you have to Google search to find it. Let me find it. If you do a Google search for Rado glass, I don't know, turtle? Let's see if that brings it up. Uh, yes, if you do a search for Rado glass turtle, that will take you to Jennifer Ham Makes Turtles, which is a 13-minute long video um, giving you a little bit of a tour of Jen's studio, but more importantly, watching as she crafts 
I don't think it goes into the studio at all, well, does it? It's we are just... in the studio. Oh. I right. mean, yeah. So, uh, or maybe it doesn't. I don't, I don't remember. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because you were doing it, it for the other thing. Just... I, I, I'm getting this stuff mixed up. But it, it walks through how Jen makes uh, a couple of really cute little glass turtles. Yeah, and actually it was uh, in response to some glass makers who wanted to know how I did it. And so it's a, it's a bit abbreviated. But it's fun still to watch. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily for public consumption because you were assuming the audience was only fellow glassmakers. But still, it, it, it's, it, it gives you a really good idea of what Jen does professionally. Alrighty, but anyway, so Nathan saw the video, loved it. Yep. And um, let's see, he, ta- he says, you've talked in the past about your kiln and annealing. Or whatever the glass version of annealing is, which I believe is annealing it's in a kiln annealing. still. Yeah, good job. Uh, do you have to do something like that for the glass rods you're using to add glass to the sculpture. If not, why not? Hey, this is a repeat. Do they ever shatter or explode because of uneven heating, etc.? <laughs> yes, they do sometimes. As we previously established, Jen is taking her life into her own hands every time she sits down to get to work. Yep. Um, yes. Um, you hope you hope that the majority of the glass, the raw glass that you're working with, is in reasonably good shape. And most of it is. And actually, I have a little preheater oven thingy that I have next to my torch. And I bought that, I think, around Christmas time as a little special gift for myself. And okay. that helps a lot because basically you stick oh, the you rod re- in you there. Oh, you preheat the rods before you use them? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that helps. That takes care of probably 90% of it. And so that helps a lot. I have actually heard about lamp workers putting their rods, which is the raw glass, into a kiln and running it through an annealing cycle, <laughs> which seems to me like ugh, a ton of work and yeah, planning and stuff. I, I've never done that. I've never done it. I, I would. I don't think I'd ever do it. There are a couple of colors that are notoriously shocky, which is the term for that. Uh, but like I said, since I've gotten this little this little oven thing, that seems to help a lot. So basically, um, I, you, you just uh, assume the audience understands why all your things are exploding in your hand. But did you explain that about you know the heat coefficients and this and that and the other or the you know? Uh, well, glass. No, I guess I did. The coefficients of expansion really don't have anything to do with oh, that. I don't know what I'm talking about. Basically, yeah. I mean, if you stick glass in and you heat it up, the flame is probably at least. 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, probably 22, 24, 25, something like that, really. And if you introduce a cold glass rod into a very hot flame... What'll happen? Well, it might shatter. It might have little bits of glass that ping off. And that's uh, a bit unexpected most of the time when it So, happens. I mean, before you got, you, you treated yourself to the thing that prevents that from happening... And since you don't do the thing that other professionals do of actually preheating their rods in their main kiln... No, they would they would put them in the kiln. They would heat them up to, say, 1,400 or... Oh, no, probably annealing. Just, just probably about to 1,000 degrees. And then let them cool back down. And then their, their rods would have been annealed. Mm-hmm. So that reduces a lot of the internal stresses. Yes. Because when... Oh, when they, they, oh I see. Okay. Right. So how you actually make rods is the, the people at the factories yes. have a huge, uh, basically pot of molten glass and they will pull some of that out in a I think it's in sort of a a big ladle and then they just take a big tweezer and they they start pulling some of this out and they just walk away from the big pot how does it stay perfectly straight um because they're walking away so they're stretching the glass from like like taffy 
Yeah, like taffy. But if I did that with taffy, there would be a bend. There would be a... Because gravity would pull the center of that down. So how do they keep them perfectly? Because your rods are perfectly ramrod straight. Most of them are, yeah. Uh, because they're, we're talking about huge distances, relatively. We're talking about probably 300 feet. That they... They're just hanging, floating in the air. Well, so you've got your guy with the ladle yes. and the molten glass, and you've got the other guy walking away, and they're stretching the glass out between them. And it, it but this does... is literally just floating in space. It's not like they're laying it on a surface and stretching it out. Well, the glass does eventually descend to the floor, and so they've laid out uh, sort of like wooden... Uh, just sticks or, you know, bits of wood on that the, the, the rods will lay on once they reach the ground level. Okay. All right. And then it's at that point that it gets flat. Yeah. Because they were not flat while they were doing all the stretching. I mean, there has to be gravity pulling down the center, right? Yeah. But okay. again, because you're walking away and you're pulling, and the guy who's walking away will eventually get down low. Okay. That was my question. Yeah. All right. And so any, this process uh, of, of basically pulling this molten glass out into a usable size, uh, yeah, in theory, it's cooling at a, at a reasonable temperature as it's being pulled. But some colors respond better than others to that sort of thing. Okay. And the companies don't offer a, look, we'll sell them to you pre-annealed for an extra XDY per rod. I have never seen that. Even the super so, duper expensive glass. My other question to you was, because exactly. I genuinely, I don't know what the heck Jen does off in her studio. <laughs> um, is So, before you got yourself that side thing, yeah. did you just have a lot more explosions? Um, I was using my kiln as an oven. Oh, they, okay, I'm sorry. You just said that. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. So sorry, I was using my bead annealing kiln as an oven. I was shoving the rods into the for how long? Until uh, I needed them. I'd put them in and then let them preheat and then pull them out, use them, etc. So that's what you're still doing. You just now have a dedicated yeah kiln for that. All right, yep. oven for that. Okay, cool. Well, there you go. Apparently, you have some technical people asking technical questions. But before we continue, was that all the questions? It seemed like there was something else. Was there something else from? Um, hold on. It was Nathan, I think. Right, no, it was, um, do you, what do you have to, I mean, he was asking about, do your rod shatter? And, um, or do you anneal, I mean, basically you answered exactly what he was asking. Okay. All right, and before we move on to the next one, I forgot when I was doing the game-related questions yesterday, people were sending in dog pictures, <gasps> which dog was wrong pictures. to send them in. You got to send them into the personal stuff. So let me see if I can find them, because Jen's got to see. Well, here's one of them. Christian. Here's Jen's um, raw response to your pooch. Oh, he's a cutie pie. Uh, or he or she, I don't remember. But that is a cute little pup. Yeah. What, um, what kind of dog is it? Uh, I don't know. I'm the, just the, scanning to see if I can read. Said, Christian says, dog photo attached. You need to know nothing about his dog. It's a dog of mystery. Okay. And the other one was a bit more straightforward. Nigel included this oh, picture. Oh, that is adorable. And I, you know, it's Charlie the Labrador. I don't think I've ever seen a Labrador roll up in a ball like that. Well, they must do. I guess, but... Obviously. But, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a little ball of lab. A uh, lab ball. Yep. All right. Sorry, folks. There's no visual component for you. You'll just have to imagine a cute picture of a golden Labrador rolled up into a tiny little ball. And a, I'm going to say a mutt looking at the camera very um, intently earnestly. and adoringly. Earnestly. Earnestly, yes. yes. Earnestly, that's a better word. Okay. But anyway, we are now moving back to uh, where we were. And if I can make sure, yep, just confirm it. Everything's still recording because that was could that could have been fraught with peril. All of that stuff I just did. <laughs> so Jen can see those dog pictures um, and keep them coming, folks. But put them in the personal questions. Michael 
Wanted to thank Jen for the tea recommendation she gave previously. Ooh, Bengal spice is amazing, uh, and just what Michael was looking for. Lovely. He's very sad to find out uh, that the almond sunset has been discontinued. You're kidding me. He was very excited to try it. Almond sunset discontinued. Oh, they had a really good one. It was a hazelnut. This is all cream. from the Pike Place Marketplace, still. No, no, no. This is this is Celestial Season. Oh, okay, yes, all right. But Celestial Seasons had an amazing hazelnut one, too, that was so good, and they discontinued it. I don't know why they do that to me. Um, I feel personally grieved. Because you haven't started your tea podcast. Apparently. And so you can become the foremost tea influencer, <laughs> to where all the tea publishers have to pay attention to what you're doing. And if you uh, get your army of tea-holics wow. um, behind you, you can make any flavor come back from... I Now I want to go to the store and buy all the almond sunsets. I've... You better. Find, I don't know. According to Michael, they're going fast. Soon they'll be commanding high prices on the Ebays. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, Michael continues, Does Jen have any other suggestion for herbal, non-caffeinated teas that are as flavorful as Bengal spice? Most herbal teas taste like flavored water, but Bengal spice actually tastes like it's its own drink. Yeah, it is delicious. And in its own category because of how absolutely wonderful that is. I don't know if you've tried any of the licorice ones. Wow, Jen, I, I totally didn't think she was... Nope, Jen really is deep in on the tea. You, you need to do a tea podcast, honey pie. This is ridiculous. But anyway, continue. Yes, the licorices you were saying, are these yeah. also from the herbal who's eat my chiggers? Um, Well, actually, I would have to go out and look because I have licorice ones still from the EU that mm. I'm not sure are available over here. So I can't give you a re- recommendation specifically on a particular licorice one, but... Th- I was amazed. I never would have thought I would have enjoyed them. And they have a very distinct flavor, but they have their own natural sweetness as well, which is, I think... Yeah, you're not a licorice... You're not a straight licorice fan at all. No, not really. Um, So maybe try something. I could do a little looking around. Uh, I still have a bunch of the ones from Malta, though, in England. Um, So maybe, maybe do a little looking into that. And let me just think. An herbal... Herbal one. Hmm. There aren't many herbal ones that are. Uh, uh, Bengal spice is definitely in a in a category of its own. Um. They do make decaffeinated ones. I don't know if you want specifically herbal because it's not black tea. Why don't you write in and, and give me some more specifics about what you're you're really <laughs> looking for? And in the meantime, I'll think about herbal ones. Or just lobby Jen to start her own tea-based podcast. Yeah, but but do check out a licorice, black licorice. I guess it couldn't be a podcast though, because I mean the tea people would have to see the tea. So you just need to start your own YouTube channel where you know <laughs> brewing tea with Jen or something like that. And you know every couple of days there's a new episode as you do taste. I I, I bet you this kind of thing exists. And Probably. I had no idea, Honey Pie, the depth of your expertise in this arena. <laughs> and I you believe Michael, know, but... am I crazy or should Jen start a tea YouTube channel? Maybe we could call have a cuppa. There you go. Yeah, you got to. I, I, if that's not taken, all right. Okay. Um, uh, Michael continues, on the topic of hot beverages, a couple quick questions regarding the hot chocolate you were drinking last episode. Uh, I asked if you had added anything to sweeten it. Isn't hot (laughs) chocolate basically just sugar? Or does Jen have some magical low sugar hot chocolate that I'm unaware of? 
Also, Jen mentioned she had added something to the hot chocolate, and we both giggled. And then proceeded to not tell us what she had added. What's the deal? What's the secret ingredient to Jen's hot chocolate? Okay, well, first of all, let me tell you about the chocolate. Um, I buy really nice dark chocolate that doesn't have anything in it. It's just dark cocoa powder. And by the way, did you know that cocoa... Who's the brand? You gotta... And cacao are actually the same thing. It was just that when the crates from the Americas reached Britain, somebody had had a typo. And it went from cacao to cocoa. Oh. Which is a much... I think cocoa is a much nicer thing Yeah, cacao uh, is a mouthful. It's just... It's ca- just not... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, unfor- I mean, fortunately, cocoa is, is a very nice word. Yes. But the, the correct thing is cacao. Anyway, um, so I buy 70%. This is the brilliant kind of observations, <laughs> folks. You'll be able to enjoy coming soon to YouTube. <laughs> on Have a Cup of with Jen. <laughs> anyway, go on. Uh, so, let's see. I think the last time I bought cacao powder, it was from the this amazing spice place in... in Seattle at Pike Street Market. It wasn't the same place you buy Market Spice Tea. There's a little spicery uh, business not too far away, just uh, down the hill a little bit. So I can look that up and I can tell you what it is. In fact, I guess, Duck, you can put it in the show notes because I I can't tell you right now exactly what it is off the top of my head. What would be involved? You just have to go and look physically? Yeah. Uh, If you want, you got the mouse is closer to you. If you hover that mouse over that yellow button in the top left, not the yellow, the blue button in the top left corner of the screen. The mouse is not working. uh, You have to click a button to wake it up. Okay. And now click, if you click that button in the very, very top left corner, that is a pause button. So folks, we're going to pause while Jen, no, not the yellow one. (laughs) You said the yellow button. The blue button. You didn't say, did he say the blue button? He said the yellow button. I did. I originally said the yellow button, but then I said, no, 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 the blue button. Well, I, I heard yellow. Anyway. Did y'all hear blue? Because. Uh, well, they'll get back to you in next month's uh, podcast. <laughs> but um, we don't, don't, don't get it yet. We're still talking. <laughs> but this is this is a terrible mistake putting Jen closer to the mic. This is all falling apart. Um, when you are ready, you can pause and then you can go look up whatever it was. Okay. All right. So we're pausing now, folks. Okay. I'm not pushing the yellow button. Did I do it? No. Well. Okay. All right. That was quite an expedition Jen just made. For you, it was a quarter of a second. I've been sitting here for like a half an hour, I think. Oh, dear. But it was a very good expedition because right before Christmas, I had ordered from Celestial Seasoning, and I am happy to report I have six boxes of almond sunset sitting in my closet right now. So just rub it in his nose, why don't you? Straight in the nose. All right. Um, but I also got a whole bunch of other teas that were new to me, so I had totally forgotten about that. And uh, so thank you for reminding me that I should go and look at what I've already got. So some nice new stuff. However, I did also look at my current stuff that's out on the countertop, and a couple things sprung to my attention. I don't think I mentioned this last time, but their Celestial Seasonings has a herbal tea called Roast Aroma. And it's actually made, I think, with roasted barley. I'd have to look at it again. Uh, it's, yeah, roasted barley, roasted chicory, roasted carob, cinnamon, allspice, and Chinese star anise. And it is really nice. It is, you know, no caffeine. It's herbal. And I often have this in the evening with a spot of cream in it because it's just a really hearty tea. And it's nice to have that sometimes in the evenings instead of dessert. So, um, 
roast aroma. Plus it's fun to say. Uh, right. And then I went and I looked up the chocolate thing and the chocolate thing is called, okay. If you go to worldspice.com and you look up cocoa powder, they've got one and it's V-A-L-R-H-O-N-A. It's pretty spendy stuff, but it is delicious. And that's what I use for my hot chocolate. And basically I just mix some of that with some cream usually. And I think on that day I had actually mixed in a little bit of peppermint schnapps. That, Michael, was the secret ingredient. <laughs> yep. The schnapps. Schnapps. Yep. Jen needed some fortifying before facing all of you folks. <laughs> well, I don't remember exactly what was going on that day, but apparently I needed it for something. Mm -hmm. So anyway, and also it adds a little bit of sweetness, obviously. The peppermint, any kind of peppermint liqueur will add a little bit of sweetness. So that is that. And if you're there anyway, the reason that I know about worldspice.com is because years ago when we were in college, I was introduced to Ethiopian food and I love it. I love it. It's my favorite kind of foreign food. And this place actually has a mix and they call it the Berberi mix, B-E-R-B-E-R-E. And it's so you can sprinkle a little bit of that on an omelet or you can actually marinate meat with it or what have you. And you get that lovely flavor. And it since the house. I, I mean, I love the smell of Ethiopian food, too. So it's just wonderful. So over the years, over the last 30 years, when I've been in Seattle a lot, if I'm out of this spice mix, I do go there and get that. And that's how I even know about them. So I uh, haven't been on their website before. And apparently... They've got a ton of tea, which I'm now aware of, and I'm going to have to look at that <laughs> later. But that's definitely a later thing. Yeah. And lastly, I also looked up licorice teas, and I think, because uh, I was thinking maybe Twinings had one that's available here in the States, and they probably do. But even more accessibly, Stash has one. And looking at the information for it, it says licorice is 50 times sweeter than sugarcane. And of course, has no carbs to it. So that's pretty cool. And Stash's tea is herbal. It's combined with cinnamon, orange peel, star anise, and sarsaparilla. So that might be worth trying. In fact, I will keep an eye out for that when I'm in the store next. Cause... And keep an eye out for Jen's YouTube channel because this is crazy. <laughs> this is... He asked. I know. This, I'm just saying you run deep on this topic, honey pie. <laughs> and it's a shame that it's being buried at the tail end of some random board game podcast. Anyway, you should consider it. Seriously, I think. I mean, you've got a lot to say here. Well, and I bet you, you'd be pretty popular. I bet. Okay. But folks, you tell us. What do you think? Um, and... Uh, any final thoughts before we move on to non-tea-related topics? No, I think I've covered everything. Or we're going away from hot beverages. Yeah. To Corey, who currently works for the USPS and has done so for six years. Mm. Awesome, Corey. Best yes. job I ever had was a mailman in Seattle. I uh, loved it. You heard that I had left the post office, uh, but can't talk about it on the air. No, he is forbidden. Would I be willing to email you why I left? The answer is driving you crazy. I understand if you can't, won't. So uh, thank you in advance. Well, I mean, what Jen We're will allow me to what Jen will allow me to say <laughs> is, I was fired from the United States Postal Service um, for. That has nothing to do with the thing I don't want to talk yes, about. Yes, I know. Well, I'm well, I don't even remember what the thing is you're so worried about that nobody cares about. And the, I looked it up, and the statute of limitations is long over. Okay. Um, 
I got fired from the post office because, as it turns out, Nintendo of America had sent the post office a letter saying, do not hire this man. We fired him for stealing office supplies, which is not true at all. Uh, but when they eventually found that in my record, they said, oh, well, we're, you're great. We love you. All your managers in every station you ever worked for think you're the best and want you a full time. But we got to let you go because you said you left Nintendo due to managerial differences. I think I've talked about the being fired from Nintendo story because you don't have a problem with that. There's one key element to this story that I'm still not allowed to tell. But it has nothing to do with why I left the post office. I was fired from the post office because I was fired from Nintendo. And Nintendo reached out from the grave, like, whatever it was, three or four years later, and got me fired from the post office. Which is... I guess it was a good thing, but man, I really love being a mailman. It was awesome, and I hope you enjoy it, Corey. And uh, we are big supporters of the USPS in this household. Yep. All right, and, and if you love the post office, anybody listening to this, vote accordingly. All righty. So, let's move on to uh, Shaw is back. Yay! Also known as uh, Gerard, as in Gerard Butler. And I keep reading it as Gerald. It's impossible. I don't know why I can't do this. You will train me eventually. Alrighty. Uh, Gerard is a huge Survivor fan. He was in grade 11. So that means we should be able to tell how old he is when it first aired. Not sure if I should say spoilers or not. But back at the beginning when it started, uh, you guys told me... I was in grade 11 when it first aired. Not sure if I should say spoiler or not, but back in the beginning when it started, you guys told me to reply when it got closer. Um, oh, I guess he must be talking about the, the the new season. I was cheering for Ethan, the winner from Survivor Africa. Uh, Tony, the all right, this is a spoiler, folks. If you're not caught up on Survivor, but I think it ended a month ago, so it's probably fine. Tony, who won, um, he was very creative on how he played and never getting his name written down once. Who were you guys cheering for? Did you like the season? Uh, I thought bringing the fire tokens were such a game changer. Any wow factor moments for you? Any way big fans of your show and all the hard work you and Jennifer do? Who are we hoping for, Honey Pie? Um, I kind of liked Sarah, the cop. The cop? Yeah, Sarah was awesome. You know, especially near the end. I mean, she got... Yeah. She was really yeah. good. Um... I also like the and, 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 and to be fair, I mean, people are quick to dismiss Sarah as, oh, she was riding on Tony's coattails because Tony gets all the, the, the glory. I, you know, I mean, uh, he got a lot of film time, too. Yeah, he got, yeah I mean, don't forget, yeah, he got all, you know, I mean, the, the, the uh, directors loved him. So, of course, we get to see a lot of him. But to me, my problem with Tony was he was just so scattershot. And there are so many moments of, throughout the season of Sarah just calming him down <laughs> and stopping him from being his own worst enemy. And yes, I don't deny he had a lot of really great intuitive leaps and smart moves he made, but honestly, I don't think he would have made it. I think he would have spiraled out of control, at least again, only based on what we saw, if it weren't for Sarah keeping him from just going absolutely crazy. And, um, you know, so, I mean, she was absolutely crucial to his game. And she was a smart player, too. And, um, you know, and her emotional journey she went on, of course, was very yeah, powerful and was, impactful. That was really good. But anyway, I interrupted you. What else are you saying? Honey? Oh, um, the older gal. I can't remember her name right off the top of my head. Uh, I don't remember either. It's, uh, you know, you should have asked last month. But, of course, you didn't because, uh, let's see, who was in the latest season cast? I don't remember. I, we can never, I mean, after a few weeks, we. I'm surprised you remember 
uh, which you do remember. Let's see. Who was the older lady? Oh, Denise. Denise. Yeah, I just thought she was really representing and, and a strong female character and I really and an older. Well, female person. <laughs> I mean, I know they're characters because they're on a TV show, but I mean, yeah. it's, that's, okay. I, I just because a lot of people dismiss, oh, it's all fake. I mean, there are so many people out there that say everything is fake and you can't believe any of well, it. And it's I like, oh, remember. and they're all just characters. They've re- they're re- they're reading scripts and, and it's just, no. But they're not, no. Yeah. But I, I do remember how disappointed I was when I first found out that Survivor um, uses actors. Well, I mean, they have, Past sometimes they get, um, they list them as models, I think. Um, yeah, but they're, I mean, everybody in Los Angeles is a model slash actor. <laughs> and um, yes, yeah, sometimes that does happen. But it doesn't mean they aren't having real experiences exactly. out there. Yeah, once they're out there, yeah, then yeah, yeah the time off. for acting is over. <laughs> they're, uh, they they may, they may get on sl- because they're a super actor and they do crazy stuff. But yeah. Um, so you were kind of hoping for Denise. And uh, what about Natalie? Natalie came a long way in my estimation. She has annoyed me every time I see her, including on Amazing Race. But I think she was really impressive on Extinction Island. Was it Extinction Island? Uh, I forget. Whatever it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she really impressed me, finally. It's only taken 10 years. <laughs> and, you know, maybe she's fully impressive. It's just, boy, she's annoying. <laughs> she wasn't annoying in this season at all. You, you are responding to the fact... What was her sister's name when they were both on? Twinny. Twinny. Who knows? You were, just, you were not annoyed by Natalie. You were annoyed by um, her always having to say, Twinny, 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 over and over again. She'd say, Twinny! Yes, and that's, yeah. Uh, you, 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 you found her to be a bit much to take when she was interacting with her sister. But on her own, I think she's always been very strong. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. What else? You know what? I'm sorry, Gerald. I'm just going to call you Shaw from now on. I, I just can't do it. I don't know why. You're doing I, I, great, honey. You yeah. keep saying the right uh, thing. Anyway, so did you like the season? I did. Yeah. And uh, the 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 coin, the, you know, the the. I mean, that was by far the most gamey thing they have ever done. Basically, mm-hmm. introducing an economy into the simulation yep. uh, was very very cool. I it was very opaque though. I never really felt like we as the audience really understood what was going on with it, and I think that's on purpose because. The it seems like the most that it seems like the cast had some idea. Oh, we can use these to get rewards. Well, they did because they, remember they saw the menu of what they could right, buy. Right, but with only their... when I mean nobody would do it until like oh well, I'm going to lose these next week, so I guess I'll use it now. And it it felt like for the most part oh people are trading them, but it's all just like this blind economy where nobody even knows what they're for. And I mean that was interesting uh, because obviously they had a huge impact at the end, but nobody knew that. Everybody just made assumptions. And honestly, I, th- I would have liked the rules to be a bit clearer about what their meaning was. I'd like them to expire a bit so people would use them more often rather than just hoarding them. But I mean, I, I think they're great, and I look forward to seeing them in the future because I think there's a lot of cool stuff they could do with them. Yeah, I mean, really, the only one who used his in the sort of middle of the game was the tall, skinny, blonde guy. Yeah, Tyson. Yeah, who bought the. Jug of peanut butter. Yep. And hit it away from everybody. Well, yeah. I can't blame him for that. He yeah. was... So... And it was his, you know, to do with as he wished. Yes. So. Um, yeah, I think those were his questions. Sorry, folks. Uh, there's a lot of Survivor spoilers. But hey, if you made it through that tea diatribe, I'm sure you were able to make it through this. Okay. Um, let's see. Joe. Uh, Joe asks a question for me and for Jen. He asked me, would I consider myself a humanist? And to answer his question, I am going to go look up. What is a humanist? What is a humanist? 
That's one of those terms you hear, but I, yeah, all right. It's an advocate or follower of the principles of humanism, oh. which is a philosophical stance that emphasizes the value and agency of human beings individually and collectively. The meaning of the term humanism is fluctuated according to successive intellectual movements that I've identified with it. Um, that's a little vague. It's a philosophy emphasizing the value and agency of human beings. Well, you know what? I do value the uh, uh, agency of human beings. Um, right. Right, okay, oh, here's... Uh, humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that, without theism or other supernatural beliefs, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to a greater good. Boy, I like the sound of that. Sign me up. That's I am now officially, thanks to you, Joe, a humanist. I, and how could somebody not be? Yeah. What is the... I, okay, I gotta, what's the opposite of a humanist? Um, opposite of humanism. The opposite of humanism is egoism. Yeah, all right off the bat, I don't even like the name of that. Yes, I'm a humanist. Okay, Jen, meanwhile, the question for her is... If he remembers correctly, you really... Although, he didn't ask, but honey, do you consider yourself a humanist? I would. All right. Did you know what that meant before I just read all that? Do you know what? There's actually a humanist society in Farnham that's quite active. And Sue Shaw, my yes. dear friend, yes. um, had invited me to go along with her to do some of these things. And it just never worked out with the timing. But yeah, yeah I've been kind of interested in it for a while. All right. Seems, seems good stuff. Yeah. Sounded good to oh, me. Oh, actually, Richard... No, I did. I went and saw Richard Dawkins. Mm. He's big into the humanist music. Yeah, Richard Dawkins is pretty cool, but he can be a real dick. Um, I, I think Richard Dawkins has a great message, and he's a terrible messenger, unfortunately. Ah, yeah, well, he's probably had to scream so many times uh, to be... Heard. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's true. I mean, but still, you know, if he wants to keep fighting the good fight, you know... You got to bring people onto your side. Exactly. Um, you know, them. more flies with... Honey. Honey than vinegar, Rich. Just, just saying. Uh, but anyway, personal question for Jen. Joe says, if he remembers correctly, you loved the books, The Pillars of the Earth. I did enjoy them. Did you? I think so. All right. Do you? It's about the, yeah. all the billion different people who built a cathedral yep. over like several generations or whatever? I remember. Right. Um, have you read, and do you also recommend the sequels and other books by Ken Follett? He read Pillars last year and loved it and is about to start World Without End. Did you read the whole series or did you just read Pillars? I think I did read... The second one. Mm. I think there's three out now. Yes. I don't Call believe Fire is the third one. I and I only know that because the game for it is right behind you. Mm. Otherwise, I would not have remembered. Mm. Yes. Um, I I do think I read it. it. It's not sticking in my mind as much as Pillars of the Earth, so I don't... I don't know. I guess it wasn't as memorable. Okay. So it kind of went downhill? I don't want to say downhill. Maybe just not as memorable. All righty. Okay, well, are you a fan of Ken Follett in general? Or was it just that you'd read that book? Well, if he's only written three books and I've read No, no, Ken Follett is, is like a super... I mean, he's, he's, he's like a Stephen King level. Oh. Yeah. I guess I am not a fan Let's particularly. Uh, I think the only Ken Follett novel I've ever read... I don't remember the name of it. I read it in college. I think it was like a kind of a fictionalized history of the CIA. And I remember really being impressed with it. I think. But man, I don't remember at all. But anyway, that wasn't for me. That was for Jen. So, um, I guess he was looking for advice. Should he start World Without End? Yes. All right. Okay, there you go. Good luck, Joe. Let us know how it goes. In 50 years, because they're very long. All righty. Next up, we have Jack. Jack is back. 
And Jack has three political questions. And um, it's at this point where I will say that last month I said, hey, you know what, folks? I know the politics can be a little bit heavy for some, so let's just go on ahead and put those at the end if more of them come in. And Jack said, yes, this is awesome. More political questions. Hooray. <laughs> um, Jack, I'm really sorry, man. Um, you know, I, I've, I've enjoyed, uh, you know, I, I, this isn't against you, but these days, um, right now, I just don't know if I feel like having, you know, intellectual barbs and back and forth and, you know, uh, about politics, uh, you know, with, with the events that are going on in the world right now, it's just gotten a lot more real. And I just, when I realized, oh, this is just becoming kind of like another weird Star Wars thing of, hey, you know, write in more questions and Rado will yell about politics and stuff like that. Politics is important. But when I realized, oh, I'm literally going to delegate it, I, it, it's, it doesn't feel like it's right. It feels like it's a sideshow. And right now, um, I think arguing about who said what when is so immaterial in the face of what we're facing as a society, as a species right now, that um, you know, at this point, I just don't really want to argue about what we disagree with. Um, so I think, I'm sure some people will be very happy to say, I'm just going to put politics on hold for a while. I think the only politics you'll be seeing from me in the future is that I'm just going to start wearing my Black Lives Matter t-shirt in every video moving forward for a while. Um, I don't know how long. I can't say until racism is solved, but yeah, I, 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 you know, I appreciate it. I can see you put a lot of thought into this, and, and I know you're doing this in good faith, and you're ready to have real discussions, Jack. But at this point, honestly, man, I'm sorry. I'm just not up for it. So we're just going to move on to the next one and do a moratorium. Because Jack also had a personal question for Jen that he put in non-political. So, oh. Jack, let's do it to it, man. Me and my wife are trying to get our food budget in order, and a big help. Um, has been setting up weekly meal plans. Do do we, honey, meal plan at all? And if not, how do we keep our food budget in a good place? Ooh, you know we have had to do that in the past. Yeah. Um, at the moment we we're when? not. Oh, you probably are never aware of in it, our twenties. Yeah, when we were younger. Okay, you were having to. Yep. Budget our. Yeah, I mean, I can always remember my mom would say when we were going to the you know, grocery store. Okay, we are spending fifty dollars, and we would count up as we were going through the grocery store until we reached the fifty. I do remember in our twenties, you were really hardcore about coupons and coupons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I've definitely been there and done that, and I think yeah, figuring out what you're going to eat and sorting out how to make multiple meals out of the same ingredients and all that is great and good on you. I think anytime just being generally mindful and aware is a is a really good place to be. Uh, at the moment, we aren't really worrying about that because we have made a commitment or have spent the money to already buy a half a cow and a half a pig. Yeah. So the vast majority of our sort of expensive purchases ha happen once a year <laughs> when we buy this half a pig yeah. and half a cow. Which I guess is a form of budgeting yeah. because it is not cheap. To buy no. half a cow. No, it's not. It is a big kind of moment <laughs> when you get that bill. And then we think, well, yeah, but this is it. The, I mean, you know, one, we, we want to do this because it's more ethical. We've actually toured the, uh, the farm and talked to the people and, and gotten to know them and how they treat their animals and whatnot. And um, yes, we should just go on ahead and switch over to veganism, but we don't want to do that. So we've done the next best thing we can do. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bitter pill to swallow when you see that. And we end up making compromises in other places so that we can say, yeah, we'll put that much money down on the table 
And so we can fill up a freezer full of meat that will last us a year. Yep. And it's not just half a cow. It's a half a pig too, right? That's what I said. Half oh, a did cow you? Oh, I missed that. Sorry. Might yeah. have all blended together. Okay. Yeah. But yep. Um, so what I'm doing now is uh, I've done a lot of gardening and I've got loads of seeds out there. We're going to have more butternut squash and pumpkins and zucchini and everything that we can probably deal with. But then we can donate it to a food bank nearby. So, or the neighbors. Yeah, or the neighbors. Um, so that's what I'm doing this year to kind of yeah. keep things under control. Well, the other one, too, is our chickens. Oh, yeah, chickens. Is a, a, a long story short, at the, you know, chickens don't cost anything to buy, and the feed is really not that expensive. No. Uh, it's mostly labor. They are very, they take a lot of our time and attention. Oh. Um, but putting aside labor it's, costs, is it cheaper to, uh, buy, in terms of, to, to buy eggs at a grocery store than to have <laughs> these chickens in the backyard? I think if you weren't crazy chicken lady like I am. Yes, okay. Because I bought two very expensive things to go with my chickens right. this year. Mm-hmm. But they're things that will last me the rest of my life. Like I bought, a, it's a galvanized steel chicken nesting box. Which, Which was, was totally unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. In fact, some was, of them prefer to lay on the floor next to the very expensive nesting box. Yeah, that was you buying yourself a present, basically. Yeah. To I save mean, you having to walk into yeah. the converted shed that has, is their living quarters now. Correct. Yeah. So, but, so putting like aside said, the crazy stuff. Yeah, and I just said I was crazy chicken lady. All right, okay, yes, yes. Sorry, I've sorry, already sorry. acknowledged that. Please continue, crazy okay. chicken lady. Yes, we'll just cup of, <laughs> cup of tea with crazy chicken lady. <laughs> Um, so I think if you don't go bananas and, but you know, on the other, I've had chickens for 10 years. Yes. So I know that I'm sticking with this and I enjoy them enough to splurge a little Mm -hmm. bit. So anyway, um, no, I think that I had figured out when, for my first flock in England that they definitely paid for themselves. Right. In oh, fact, this, this was you, your first time you had, I have to, I have to justify this because yes. this is a silly thing I'm about to embark on that changes my life, but you didn't know that at the time. You're like, okay, I'll only do this if it makes efficient economic Euro resource <laughs> management sense. Yep. And you did, and it, it does. But now and that was yeah. in part because you got more chickens than we needed and you planned to sell eggs. To and I did sell eggs. Right. Yeah. And we're not doing that now. Now we're just giving them away. Yeah. I, I like to give them to my Because we're in basically a low income area. So we're sharing the bounty. Yep. And actually, one of my neighbors brought some beautiful little um, cochino salmon, I think. Mm-hmm. That he had caught in the that river he'd nearby. That he caught in the river nearby. As a thank you for yeah. all the eggs. So that was so lovely. It was delicious. Right. And strictly speaking, you probably could. We could I'm sure the neighbors would buy the eggs if we weren't giving them I've away. had two people ask if they could buy oh, them. Oh, they don't want them as gifts. They want them to buy them from yeah, us. Yeah, but I'm not going to sell them. I yeah. just want to give them to people. As... But back to the original question yeah. of the economics. Um, if you're on good... If you're in, have good relations with your neighbors and you get more chickens to produce more eggs than you need, chickens will easily pay for themselves. Pay for themselves. I mean, yep. you'll be making money off of selling fr- farm fresh eggs to your neighbors. Yep. And so, eating the rest yourself. When I was in England, I had ten... and we eat a lot of eggs. I should say. Yeah, yeah we do. Um, but when I was in England, when yeah. we were in England, we had ten hens and we were eating four eggs a day between the two of us. Two for you and two for yeah. me for breakfast. Mm-hmm. So I had six eggs a day. I mean, not. Every day. But let's say I, I had a couple of dozen eggs that I sold every week. Mm. And that amount paid for all of the chicken expenses and the chicken food. And we got our eggs for free. Right. Okay. So, so then you're saying we broke even, but then it's a profit because we weren't pay- buying eggs at the local grocery store. Yeah. Now, so if you um, are thrifty and you get a make your coop out of an old kid's playhouse and, you know, you just string 
uh, chicken wire around and you don't buy a, a silly $150 nest box. And whoops, did I just silly. say that? Yes. It was, it it was, was crazy. It was very silly. But it's lovely. Um, anyway, then yeah, I think you can very easily justify the economics of having chickens. Plus, you have food security. Every morning, you know, you know, I go, I get eight or nine eggs from our twelve chickens now, and I made a decision to have some more ornamental chickens than production chickens. Yeah. So that's why. But I'm yeah, if if we'd had production, ten or chicken, 11 we'd be, we'd be regularly getting eleven or twelve if you had gone all uh, with the, the reds, red, the red eggs. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I think you definitely could, and and you could supplement. Yeah. So that is one way that we do very non-standard food budgeting. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. And the chickens, you know, they're like, if you got buy them as chicks, they're like $3 a chick or something like that. They're just insanely cheap. Oh, it's it's ridiculous, yeah. When, you, when we went down and got them at Wilco. Yep, and Wilco was like, buy two, get one free. Oh, exactly, yeah. Okay. Of then. these living creatures that will feed you for the next 10 years. <laughs> well, no, not 10. What, what, what is the, uh, when, when do they stop laying then? Really, you can get two years of good production out of a, uh, out of a oh, hen. Oh, okay. And then they'll start. Really? They'll slow down, yeah. It seems like we've got, had hens longer than that and still well that's because i've been getting new hens as they as the older ones got older so the production stayed up yeah 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 and there's another side of production as well uh i've killed several chickens with my with my with my own hands with a hatchet and uh we've gotten pretty good at that too yep it's never an easy or fun thing to do we always take it very seriously and very solemnly but we use every bit of that chicken well i guess not the feathers but yeah what do you do with the feathers just have thrown them away. Oh, that's sad. Well, what can you do with chicken feathers? I don't know. There must be something. Leave them out for the other birds to make nests out of, I guess. Oh, yeah. That's what we've noticed the, the um, wild birds here where we live are collecting the discarded feathers from our chickens and flying them up to their little nest boxes. Yeah. What can you do with feathers besides make lots of ink pens and quills? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, those aren't quite the kind of feathers you want for you. All right. So our food budgeting takes the form of really weird stuff. We have made long-term investments in chickens, which more than pay for themselves, although you are not taking into account the sweat equity. I suppose so, but... Yes. But for you, it's worth it. I, I mean, love I'd yeah. just hanging you out love, with the chickens. You, yeah, you, you love caring for them. Hanging with my peeps. Yep. We make the... Um, and I mean, would you say, you know, buying a half a cow and a half a pig once a year... Is that cost efficient rather than, you know... It is when you look at the cost of meat per pound. Because mm-hmm. we pay, I think it's about $6 a pound for our beef. And we get steaks and ribs and hamburger. And, I mean, you get half a cow. So all of the things, the more expensive cuts, the less expensive cuts, etc. And Yeah, for cuts six... to our specification as well, by the way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They'll, they'll make them as thick as we want. Or package them, you know, three steaks to a package because yeah. there's three of us in the house. Or... Whatever. So there's some nice customization, but $6 a pound for organic, non-GMO raised cows that have been grass-fed their whole lives and treated with humanity. $6 a pound? It's a steal. Really? It's very, yeah, yeah. I mean, what, you would expect that to be $10 a pound or something at a a Whole Foods or whatever? $12, $18. Really? Really? Those steaks that we eat are probably $18 a pound steaks. Wow. Yeah. And we're and for us because we buy them all at once in bulk effectively. Yep. Um literally it's wow, okay. Yep. I, I didn't know that. I mean even just buying hamburger now at Walmart is mm-hmm. is $6 a pound. Oh wow. I, uh, well actually I I shouldn't say that. Um I haven't looked at prices at Walmart but, because we have our own Yeah. Uh, hamburger. But it's it's just not cheap. Meat especially is not a cheap thing. So 
But we're supporting the farmer. They have a guaranteed income. So yep. they can do what they're going to do. Are you looking it up on Walmart? I'm just looking at, well, I, I found some from 2017, so that's a little out of date. But yeah, I don't think six. I think six is probably, it looks like maybe three or four bucks a pound. For is just, it? For just straight hamburger, you know, cheap hamburger from a mm. grocery store. Okay. From feedlot cattle. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So uh, we do that. We do the chickens. There was a third thing you said. We gardening. Did. Oh, gardening. Yes. We'll be growing the, you know. a lot of our, our veg this year. Yeah. Um, Just yeah. because I'm a little bit worried about the food chain. You, you, you did it. You, 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 we grew so much stuff in England. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that backyard was just chock-a-block with vegetables and fruits. I mean, it just so it, it was fruit. so insane. The, Year-round, not... there was always something you were harvesting. Yeah, and you couldn't even go through all of the apples. Yeah. I mean, remember I used to just make compote, like, by the and just, you huge know, gallon give it to anybody full. just yes. walking down the street who Please, would take Please, have some apple compote. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> And, you know, we lived in Malta for whatever, how many years, and you had to put all that on hold. You just couldn't really get anything in that yeah. arid I mean, climate. I tried to grow a lemon tree, yep. and it didn't make yep. it. So, yeah, now that we're back here in very rich, fertile, nice climate, moist, moist climate, yep. Jen is definitely. So those are our three tricks for food budgeting. And, uh, yeah, we don't really eat out very often. No. Um, ne- we never really have, I don't think. I was. I can remember back when Ronald Roanstreet started that people were like, "You should take Jen out for dinner once a month with the money from you know it was before you were taking oh, your salary yeah, when I started, and all that." Yeah, and I mean, so that was what ten years ago almost. No, no, it's like I mean, when I, seven years ago maybe. Seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Anyway, and so I mean, I can remember at that point it was like, "Oh, go out to dinner once a month," you know, have have the fans treat us kind of yeah. a thing. That was that was a really special thing. So, no, we just don't eat out very much. Yep, yep. And part of that is I like to know what I'm eating. And most restaurants will use, you know, um, canola oil or they'll be using fructose syrup or whatever. And I just don't want that stuff in my body. So we don't eat out much. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I mean, that's just a way, you know, that we are relatively economically eating very high on the hog. Yeah. Effectively. By, um, you know... Trade, you know, with the sweat equity again. Um, I mean, you, you know, we spent a lot. You spent a lot of time with that gardening. You spent a lot of time with those chickens, but for you, it's time well spent. Yep, yeah. I enjoy my chicks. All right, and I enjoy gardening. Yeah, um, and we st- we're still suckers for a good coupon. About the only time we do eat out is when Red <laughs> Robin sends us a two for one burgers. Yep, uh, because you're special, long time, lifetime members of the Red Robin Club or whatever. So that's that's how you'll get us to eat out is if you give us a two for one deal. Yep. All right. Um, let's see. Daniel says, "Can we have some recordings of dog belly rubbing, please?" I I don't know if he wants another YouTube channel where Jen rubs dogs' bellies. Just oh, re- oh video recordings or I, he I, he, he put a smile. He's just joking oh. around. Okay. Um, I, I would imagine he probably wrote that because at one point we were doing something and Daisy was in and making a lot of scuffling noises or whatever. I see. I would imagine. Yes. But he also asks, have we ever tried cookie slash biscuit milkshakes? Here's the recipe. Here's Daniel's recipe, everybody, for a cookie biscuit milkshake. 100 to 300 grams of ground up biscuits in a bowl, pour milk, and mix with teaspoon until you have the desired density. Add three teaspoons of chocolate powder ice cream, or otherwise, per 100 grams of biscuit, blender, voila. Sounds great. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, especially if you're talking about those cinnamon biscuits. I it was sounds just, like he's European. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh man, if, if we got into some of those Scottish... Um, Are you yeah. talking about the shortbread? Yeah. I'm talking about those cinnamon... 
um, things, the cinnamon ones that mm-hmm. are so good. What would I? Uh, Speculoos. Speculoos, thank you. Speculoos, oh my gosh, yes. That's what I'm picturing when he says that. Wow. I, I figured, oh, I'll just read this because who really cares? I'm but just going to be really I'm got salivating my, here. Yeah, you've literally got my mouth watering down. <laughs> Curse you. All right. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see here. Daniel also has some Star Wars questions. We'll save those till the end. I'll, I'll leave the yes. building for that. Um, okay. Back to Christian. Let's see here. Uh, oh, wait. Oh, no. No, actually, you know what? I handled question stuff in the uh, game-related stuff, so we're already past that. You've already heard it. Uh, although, what the heck? Now, nah, move on. Question: If you want to hear Jen's thoughts about that, Christian, write in again. Because Jen is checking her phone, I've just noticed a couple of times. So I think she is ready to go. <laughs> and she has no idea how much longer we've got. We're getting close, honey. Bye. Um, right. In a lot of your... Oh, yeah. If, in a lot of your videos in uh, late 2019 and early 2020, I've worn a math shirt in all caps. Where did this shirt come from? What is the story behind math? Math, uh, Marty, is an acronym for Make America Think Harder. It was the uh, political campaign slogan of Andrew Yang, who I think is the uh, most transformative c- politician of our lifetimes. And uh, he made a run for uh, President of the United States. It didn't work out, but he really, what's it called, uh, moved the Overton window and really got um, mainstream society talking about ideas like UBI and other. I mean, a lot of people say he was the UBI candidate, but he had. He had well over a hundred really forward-thinking, almost futurist ideas about how to make the world a better place. And I've never been so inspired by any politician. I've never been inspired by any politician, even ones I like, but he genuinely inspired me. And even though his campaign is over, I continue to wear his merchandise. And as far as I'm concerned, it's Yang 2024. Um, and if you want to know more, just go do a... You know, go to yang2020.com. That was his presidential campaign. Read some of his platforms, and you tell me if you don't think he would change the world and make it a better place. Uh, particularly because all of his ideas were solution-based instead of partisan political-based, and I believe he would have actually been able to thread that needle and bring people together in a way that regular politicians are incapable of. Um, anyway, though. Moving right along, have you and Jen been at the state and or national parks here in Washington, um, either since you've come back or um, before we went overseas? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Lots of them. Uh-huh. Um, since, I, since we've been back, uh, I've taken my sister up to the Mount St. Helens National Park with uh, my, my niece and nephew. Yeah. And then my mother and I... Last year did quite a lot of driving around looking at gorgeous stuff. Yep. So, yeah, we did uh, all along the coast, uh, went up to Mount Vernon. I don't know that there's, a, there's no national parks up there, but, yeah, we've seen a lot of the beauty of this area cool. since, we've, since we've been back. And then, of course, before then, uh, oh, yeah, my yeah, mother yeah. has always been really good about getting us out to see where the natural beauty of where we, wherever we are. Yeah. So I feel like I've seen quite a lot of Washington. And actually my dad and um, stepmom also, when I was in still living with them, that we would go off and like drive to the Palouse and just see that or um, go somewhere in the, uh, in the fall and buy apples from an orchard somewhere, say uh, a little bit south of Yakima, I think it was. But anyway, yeah. So I, I feel like I've seen quite a lot of Washington State. 
Okay, well, um, also, sorry, another visual component, folks. Marty sent a picture she attached from our wedding in 2018. If you look at the two big meeples, ah! which were gifted from Meeple Source, you uh-huh. can see two small glass meeples. I see that. Um, and he just, uh, so Marty wanted to share that. That's really cute. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that, that actually looks really good. Okay, folks, honey, we're almost done. Okay. Uh, Marco. Right, okay. Uh, right. Listening to the podcast recently, uh, started a checkup on UBI. Which is Universal Basic Income. Universal Basic Income. Uh, During this, I've come across this video from Cold Fusion TV. I actually subscribe to Cold Fusion TV. I like that uh, channel a lot. Um, In 20 minutes and 20 seconds, uh, the Cold Fusion TV says UBI can solve the questions of basic needs like food and stuff, but raises the question of how people will lose their job to automation, especially workforce for repetitive jobs, uh, would find new purpose if they don't do their old job anymore and are unable to be trained on other jobs. So, Marco's question. What do I think regarding the, the question of purpose in wow. people's lives? That's interesting. I wonder if this whole pandemic time and people being, you know, stayed home has allowed people to find. I think so. I do think the, um, the COVID situation has definitely, I think in a lot of ways, fast-forwarded our society's eventual acceptance of what is required in the face of automation, in the face of, you know, all the various inequities that we, you know, have really brought on ourselves as a species. And the reality is, um, I know that's a really common talking point that, oh no, if people can't do whatever, you know, whatever job they've done their whole lives, whether they loved it or hated it, their life will become empty and meaningless without work. My first response to that is, you know who doesn't think that? Um, Dilettante billionaires. (laughs) <laughs> who have determined that, oh, you know what? When my basic needs are met, I still somehow find a reason to get up every day. And go to work and make things better for... <laughs> well, no, I was even saying that. I mean, yes, of course, yeah, a lot of them do work. But that's an argument for, oh, no, we need work. But I'm saying there's a lot of people who um, have just decided, you know what? Um, hey, this is awesome. Uh, I don't oh. have to work all the time. And um, there can be more to somebody's life and somebody's identity than what they do. Okay, well, I was thinking more like Elon Musk or Bill Gates or something who continue to do stuff even after their basic needs. And they're not doing it. Exactly. And yeah, sure, they're billionaires and they can do that. But um, even if you're not a billionaire, if all your basic needs are taken care of, you can volunteer to be a coach for local Little League. You can, um, you know, you can explore artistic expression of what you might want to say about the world. You can... Um, or it doesn't even have to be about what you want to say. You just get in and have some fun and play. Yep. You can help clean up your neighborhood um, and get a sense of satisfaction knowing that the street, uh, you know, by your house is, uh, is uh, you know, and, and, you, and you, can, you can take that. And, um, or... You can spend more time with your family, friends, and loved ones and just try to improve the quality of their life. And you don't have to consider that work. You don't, but, and, um, but that doesn't mean that can't be the core of what makes you have a rich and fulfilled life. That's the reality. It's a trap. Americans are definitely guilty of this. And it's certainly true in a lot of other cultures as well. We are workaholics. We are addicted to work. Anybody you meet for the first time, nine times out of ten, first question they ask is, well, what do you do? Which is code for saying, well, um, what do you, you, know, you know, what is it that you feel gives your life meaning? 
Um, and that's what I want to know, because clearly the most important thing about you as a human being must be what you do for money. And I would put it to you, that is not the most important thing. That is not the true kernel of what makes you a human being. And that is not what you have to look to for life and purpose. And um, Cold Fusion missed a trick. If he, did, if he just fell into the old trap of, oh, without work, people will feel listless and directionless and they won't be able to find any meaning to their life. That's wrong. And um, you know, give somebody that freedom from want and from need and from fear, and you just sit back and watch and see what they find um, to give their lives meaning other than, you know, um, selling their soul to the company Stowe, you know? That's that's my feeling. Do you have anything to say about that, honey pie? I think you've said it beautifully. All righty. Further, do you know the Cold Fusion TV channel? Yes. If so, my <laughs> thoughts. I really like the channel. I've subscribed to it for years. I think he's great. Um, his voice is a little... I have to watch him. I have to watch him at two and a half speed because he talks so slow. And uh, I wish he were a bit more peppy. He's really laid back and relaxed as you're here on Cold Fusion talking about all these really exciting things. Come on, man, get excited! These are amazing <laughs> things you're talking about. But I mean, I, I think he's a great channel. Alrighty, something else with the announcement of AC Valhalla. Not quite sure what that is. Oh, that must be Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Uh, other people complaining recently about the uh, Ubisoft open world formula. Am I familiar with this? And what are my thoughts uh, on games in a series that recycle gameplay content? I don't mind uh, as they normally do that with the popular content. Is it lazy content design? I'm sorry, man. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm guessing AC stands for Assassin's Creed. You'll have to write back again next month and tell me what it is. And I'll give you my thoughts as a former video game developer. Okay. Uh, Honey Pie, we've got one more dog from Melanie. Alrighty. And, uh, oh, if you go to the next one, Jen has actually taken over the mouse. Look at that cute little pup. Oh my goodness. Two right. cute pups. Alrighty. Um, yep, so there's another cute Yuki pup. Yuki and Yo-Yo. Yuki and Yo-Yo. Cute. Do, you know what? Actually, I think when this picture came in, I think I showed you on the spot because they were so adorable. Oh, yes, yes. Yep, you remember these now. Yes. Do either of us, while well, Jen is just, um ogling the uh, Yuki and Yo-Yo picks. Do either of us have a family tradition that we uh, did, celebrated, growing up, that we now incorporate into our lives uh, as a married couple? Wow. Family I traditions tried. from our childhood. <laughs> I what, tried what do you mean? so long to get you into holidays and celebrations and stuff, and you've worn me down. Uh, now you don't care anymore? Well, it's just, it's hard to be the one who instigates it. Yeah, I mean, I went along with it, but she could never make me care. About all the festivities and the holiday. And, you know, of course, yeah, oh, if Jen wants to do this, sure, we'll do it. I'll help her out. But I can never get excited about it. And, um, yeah, after a few decades of that, Jen has maybe lost some of her enthusiasm. Yep. For, um, but, yeah, I mean, we don't have kids. If we had kids. But it's a lot of work <laughs> to put it, set it all up and put it all away. Yeah. Man, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Anything else? Any other? Uh, um, I don't have any. I, I can't think of any family traditions we had growing up. We, I, we were a very weird family. Uh, no, not really. No. I, I, you know, all the normal stuff, but yeah, don't do it anymore. Okie doke. Uh, David really enjoyed the recent video um, on my channel where uh, John Garvin and I reminisced about working on Siphon Filter. So interesting and entertaining, especially liked my Leonardo DiCaprio story. Uh, David uh, knows that I pushed the idea away in the video when John brought it up 
Uh, but it was very emotional to hear John say, and he got, he got the quotes out, This game industry misses you. The game industry needs guys like you. You've got great ideas, unique ideas that are actionable. And I think that's what the game industry needs. And John did say all those things. He was, he was being uh, very gracious. How did that and the conversation in general affect me? Uh, did I consider returning to the industry, even for a moment? How was it speaking about the old days again? How was it catching up with John again? Um, have you seen him since? Uh, it was really special to see the two of you speak about that time. And I feel like I know you a lot better now. Thank you for being so open and entertaining. Uh, folks, if you want to know more about that, I imagine a Google search of, let's see, Rado Garvin, G-A-R-Vin, um, uh, uh, live. Will that bring it up? Yes, it does. Uh, uh, yeah, that brings up Siphon Filter AMA. John and I sat down for two hours live and just answered questions about the good old days and reminisced and all that. It was a good, fun time. I hadn't spoken to John for years. And I haven't spoken to him since, but other than... We chatted a bit more back and forth, but obviously, in, since then we did that video, the world exploded. And everybody's kind of focusing on different things right now. But, to your question... Um, uh, no, not really. I mean, it was, it was super kind of him to say... But, <sighs> Jen knows the scars I bear <laughs> from almost two decades making video games. And I, I, I have not forgotten. And I know what it would mean to go back and do it. And I'm just not, I am literally too old for this bleep. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't go back. Uh, like I did say in that video, I could imagine if publishers wanted to fly me in as a consultant... And give feedback and ideas and brainstorming. I have I have done that once with uh, my yep. former employer, Edge of Reality. They had me come back, and they actually flew me, flew us. Were we in England or Malta at the time? And they flew me, and you came along, and they put us up England. so yeah. so I could spend a few days just giving them feedback on what they were working on, and that was great. I had a, it was great just seeing everybody, and I loved doing it. And I don't I don't think I actually charged for my time. The only charge was, hey, uh, pay to, for someplace for us to stay and the plane ride so that, um, so that we could use that to see friends and family and stuff like that. And I didn't actually charge anything. And I'm sure I probably could have charged quite a bit for my experience level. Um, I really enjoyed that. And I would tell if, if Sony Bend, which is only a short five-hour drive away, wanted me to come down for a few days and uh, give them some feedback on a new siphon filter series and how I would do it, I would totally, I would not do it. But I would happily give feedback. If the uh, developers working on Fable 4 wanted to fly me back to England, um, I would happily give them a few days' worth of feedback on why Fable 2 succeeded um, and Fable 3 failed. Because I didn't work on Fable 3. And, um, but I did work on Fable 2. Am I the secret sauce? I'm not saying that. But, <laughs> hey, the, the sales speak for themselves. Um, so I, I could totally imagine doing that, but that's that's it. That's as far as I could go. And reality is, I am a dinosaur. I don't know that I would have much to offer developers who weren't basically just revisiting stuff that I had done years ago, so that I could just you know give my two cents about why I think what we did worked. I mean, I haven't played a video game in years, literally, other than um, some the equivalent of virtual reality dance dance revolution stuff that I am now very much enjoying for exercise with my Oculus Quest. I've no I've tried a few games on the Oculus Quest. I'm just like I don't care. Would rather play a game with Jen at a table. I, I mean, it's just so dead to me. So I could imagine doing that, but I think that would be about it. 
Uh, it was great talking with John. I had a genuinely great time. And I have to admit, I was nervous about doing it because when John and I worked together, we were really at each other's throats. It was a very dog-eat-dog, dog, which we kind of talked about a little bit. Uh, but time heals all wounds. And uh, yeah, I mean, everybody likes uh, you know waxing nostalgic about the good old days. And that was a great time. I wish... I wish I'd had more people instead of just John on. I wish Jeff had been there and Chris and 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 Norm and Tim and and um you know and, and Brian and, and Martin and Max and Susan and 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 Mike and everybody. Mark. Uh, I I would love to talk with Mark Blank. I wonder what the heck's going on with that guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, so it, it's wonderful. Uh, because you know, all the hurt is gone and all I remember and, and Connie and Darren and everybody. And that's just from one place. I would love to get back together with the Edge guys and the Lionhead people, and you know, and and um, the TRC people. Uh, man, I would love to know what Jade is. What's going on with Jade right now? So yeah, that was great, and I'm I'm really surprised. I enjoyed it as much as I did because I tend not to be too nostalgic. I tend not to sit back and think about how great things used to be because things are great right now for me. I'm very and I'm very much appreciative of that. But I, I had a great time doing it. But yeah, I'm not going back. Um, or in any serious way. You're not going back to work full-time for a video game developer. No. that's uh, I've instead forged a new career for myself, making uh, videos and podcasts for you. And that's doing pretty well. And even though I could easily make five times as much, easily, without breaking a sweat, um, yeah, I, I think I, I'm happier doing this. So It's nice to have you home. Yeah. Although, Jen was worried when it started. Remember? Of course I was. Yeah. yeah. Like, ah, he's going to be here? All the time? <laughs> I'm going to get so sick of his crap so fast. Well, you know what? You didn't have this going on, so I thought you were going to just be, like, hovering over Pottering my around. shoulder. What you doing? What you doing? What's yeah. this? What's that? Are you cutting some glass? <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, Honey Pie. Uh, it's the end of the show, and Henrik would like oh, some words of wisdom. Oh, my God. I told her, Henrik, I told her, like, an hour ago when she was doing her tea research. Okay, honey, we really need good wisdom this time. I know. Much more so than normal. Oh, my gosh. All right. I don't know. Well, while Jen is doing that, I'll try and find those Star Wars questions again, because Jen wants nothing to do with them. And they are spoilers. And again, I'm sorry, um, Jack. Someday we'll have a political discussion person to person, and I think that'll be better than this weird kind of quasi-debate format we're in, I think. Why can't I find those Star Wars questions anymore? And maybe I should take a break from Star Wars questions, too. I mean, it's just going to be more of the same. It was Daniel, right? That's right. Daniel, did you and I debate in that Star Wars thread on Board Game Geek? I feel like we did. All right. Um, you got something, Honey Pie? No, I'm working on it. Yeah, all right. I think I saved something on my Facebook. It well, really I'm just going to prep the prime, or prime the pump, folks. For Star Wars, I said, and Daniel, Daniel might be misunderstanding, if so, correct, the Jedi were wrong to assume that you need training with the Force. You just need to tap into your emotions, and uh, you're able to learn the Force almost instantly like Rey did. Uh, that is incorrect. That is not my perspective. Um, but with that in mind... Can you tell me who said this? You know, where is it canon? I can't remember uh, anyone saying anything even remotely similar. Actually, Daniel, if you and I didn't debate this, I'm going to say, um, without getting into spoilers, go check out my Star Wars thread. Do a search for Rado Runs Through Guild Star Wars. Will that do it? Uh, Google search Rado. Just buying Jen some time. Rado Runs Through or Guild Star Wars. Let's see. Does that bring it up? Yes. That brings up a thread called Last, Bla B Last Jedi Blather. That thread is, I don't remember, 
10, 12 pages long. And um, I did. I remember there was somebody I debated at great length. And I had to get out the scripts for Return of the Jedi and The Empire Strikes Back. What, Honey Pie? I can't figure out. Um, that's because you're logged in as me. you got to switch no, to yourself. No, I, I did log in myself. Oh, you didn't? But it won't let you hey, in? On, because just... you've never logged in on this computer. That's the problem. Okay, just Normally, so... Jen has her own laptop here. Everything's gone cattywampus. <laughs> Jen's going to her phone, and I'll continue to talk about Star Wars. Sorry, folks, you got to listen to this. But all I'm doing is, Daniel, go check that out. Because I remember I debated at great length somebody who said that I was making porkies, talking about stuff that George Lucas never said in the works. And I give so many quotes saying, okay, when Yoda said this, when Obi-Wan said that, when Palpatine said this other thing, and I gave all the quotes and I parsed them and broke them down, how I believe my view, which uh, you have misrepresented a little bit, um, but which is represented very clearly in that thread. That thread will answer that question, I think. And if it doesn't, Make a Board Game Geek account and post in that thread, and I'll be happy to pick up where we left off. Okay, I also said about <clears throat> the hyperspace attack in Last Jedi. It simply doesn't make sense. Oh, this, I think this is from the thread, so you must be familiar with this thread. Um, well, go back and check it again. Your first question is answered there. It simply doesn't make sense to bankrupt your entire military to win an occasional battle by throwing away such insanely expensive ships. Okay, you didn't read the thread, because I directly addressed this in that thread. How about, and you say, well, the answer to that is, put a hyperspace drive into a Y-Wing and ram that into the core of the Death Star. Um, yeah, that doesn't hold up. That logic doesn't work. And if you go back to that Blather Jedi thread, literally the very first page, I basically, that was a thread where I had had these debates at great length with lots of people on a different forum, and I just copied and pasted all my responses. Look for the section where I talk about, well, why don't they just make a lightsaber that's 100 feet tall and attach that to the bottom of an X-Wing? Or, you know, or, you know or, or, or make a lightsaber that will make a five-mile-long lightsaber blade. And they attach that to an X-Wing, and they can just cut anything in half that they want to. Why not? The answer um, is the same answer for this. Why don't they just do technical thing that they can't do within the fiction of their universe? Because there are technical restraints. Um, and again, I talked about that at great length. So I think I've covered both of those. And, um, and then you had some politics questions too, but I think I talked about that earlier. And Honey Pie... I, I have something very important. Okay, uh, folks, uh, we're about to end, but Henrik, uh, here you go. Jen's got some wi words of wisdom for the month. Okay, this is a lot of words of wisdom. So All right, so this is a long one, folks. If you guys want to go, maybe pause for a minute, go get a cup of tea or something. Let's have confirm the recording is still recording. Yes, okay, it is. Go okay. on, Henrik. Okay, well, this... Who is this from? This is actually a something that Dixie Golden wrote on Quora... And I bookmarked it because I thought it was so brilliant. And Who's Dixie Corn? Dixie Golden. Dixie Golden. Yeah, just a person. Okay. Just a normal person? Just a, just a person. All right. Yep. And with um, both the COVID stuff going on and... Um, the Black Lives Matter stuff going on. The Black Lives yeah. Matter going on. Uh, she asks, I haven't... She's answering a question. How can I cope with death when I've never experienced it? And what she wrote, I thought, was beautiful. So I'm going to just read the whole thing. Okay. Hang in there. <laughs> um, some people try to soften or lessen their own fear of death by avoiding all things that might be associated with dying. Others try to pre-grieve so they will be ready to deal with a loved one's death. Here's what you need to know about losing someone to death. You can't get ready. 
You can't anticipate, can't decide how to cope, or have any control of anything. When you have a loss, your emotional response will be what it is. When we lose someone we love, they are gone from our lives. The cultural and religious traditions we follow are to help accept that loss. You can't prepare to cope before the experience occurs. What you can do is to live in the now and share meaningful life with people you love. Spend time with them. Honor them. Cherish their life and be a real presence in their lives. Forget about yourself and make the time that you have with your loved ones about them. Repeat until you make memories that will help you cope when they are lost to you. We don't lose people to death, but circumstances and choices and those losses can be just as final as losing them to death. Okay. So I thought that was quite appropriate. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, Honey Pie. Thank you very much, uh, Honey Golden. It was Dixie. Dixie. <laughs> All right, folks. That's another one in the can. And uh, uh, tears were shed. And we will see you again next month. As always, more questions to questions at rado.com. And thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for supporting the show. For those of you who do, for those of you who don't, don't worry about it. We're doing fine. Take care of you and yours first in these very troubling times. And uh, thanks for listening. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.